Hello, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host, Dave Kale, and this is our uh, special two weeks early Thanksgiving episode uh, <laughs> because we are, um, uh, because we're, we're we've, basically all of us are busy for the next few weeks, so we're not going to be able to do one before Thanksgiving, so this is it. And uh, this, this week we'll be giving thanks for a variety of things which include the petty dwarves and uh, the fascinating Sindar storylines that we'll be covering. And in particular for all the um, exciting um, Tolkien um, screen adaptation news that we've uh, received over the last week, which, yeah, 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 we will be covering that at the start of this episode. Uh, unfortunately, we aren't joined this week by Trish Lambert. She's um, off doing better things. But uh, at least we do have myself, Dave Kale, and as always, the tall Professor Corey Olson. Good morning, uh, Professor Olson. How Good are you, sir? Good morning. I am excellent. Thanks, Dave. Good to have you back with us again in a, in a more stable and, and uh, you know less transitory yeah, fashion. Not on a metro. <laughs> yes. Train noise in the background. <laughs> driving to dead spots. Absolutely. Although now the trade-off is now I'm home, but instead of train noise, what I have is I have a little person tapping me on the leg, right, and uh, tr- trying to talk at me. Hey, that's uh, that's that's much more that's much cuter than train noises. That's true. He may he may he may chime in on the um, on the petty dwarves. We'll see. Well, I know he has some fairly strong opinions about them, so uh, yes. it's not surprising. Um, but, uh, cool, cool. All right. So, so where should we start? Yeah. Okay. So well, we... the last thing we're going to start with is the actual episode. Cause there's a whole bunch of things that have come up that we need to talk about. So first we should, uh, uh, we should, I've been, I've been forbearing to talk about this in any of my other broadcasts because it's most obviously relevant to film film and the kind of thing that we're doing here. Um, as lots of people have been mentioning film film on Twitter this past week, uh, since of course the news broke about uh, Amazon in negotiations to acquire the rights to do the, a Lord of the Rings uh, episodic uh, adaptation. Um, uh, first, though, before we even get to that, uh, coming out sooner than that and far more definite uh, is the Tolkien biopic that's on the way and. I have to admit, I've been trying not to... I've been pretty much trying to ignore that the Tolkien biopic is happening. It's possible that it's going to be really good and going to surprise me. Um, my, my, There are two things that I've always... There are two reasons why I'm not excited about the Tolkien biopic at all. I'm not saying I'm anti... Well, I'm a little bit anti, I guess. But um, anyway, here the two things that I, um, that I dislike about the idea of a Tolkien biopic is thing number one is any time people draw attention to Tolkien's life, it's almost always in an attempt to explain things about the books in what I find to be really clumsy and in uh, insufficient ways. I'm not saying that all attention to his biography is irrelevant to understanding his stories and that understanding his life can't help us at all understand his stories. For a really good example of how that can be done really well, I would point to John Garth in his book Tolkien in the Great War. That's an excellent book and an excellent way, uh, uh, an excellent illustration of how 
understanding things about Tolkien's life can help us uh, understand some things or appreciate some things better about his books. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's usually done badly. Like the fact that John Garth did it well doesn't change the fact that it's usually done badly. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm, I'm, so I'm just kind of dreading the sort of weight, uh, in a sense, that that's going to have. You, when, you're, when you say done badly, what's your concern? That people tend to want to just find explanations for the stories in his life. Oh, like, he wrote so that words, because this happened in his life, you know, and uh, it's like, that's, yeah. I, I, I can't even begin to, like, talk about how much I hate that. Um, because it cheapens yeah, the... My, it, my yeah. concern as well is that we're not going to get an actual... Tolkien biopic that's focused on his life. We're going to get a um, oh, why is this thing happening in the Lord of the Rings? Because this thing happened. So we're not going to get like a Tolkien biopic. What we're going to get is a uh, um, you know sort of a, a narrative, a, a fictionalized narrative of Tolkien that's been crowbarred into the um, yeah. the story structure of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, uh, I, I just. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, there's so many ways in which it can be bad and so few ways in which it can be good that I just... But here's my other... Fe- not fear. Here's the other reason why I'm not excited about... Um, or rather, this is the reason why I'm even more trepidatious about it. Tolkien's life was boring. Tolkien lived a... Ve- I mean... World War One was interesting. He was in World War One, right? And World War One is interesting. When he comes back after he comes back from World War One, his life from then on is boring by all outward. I mean, his his like romance with his wife in their early years that's also interesting, right? The whole like forbidden love thing. You know, he falls in love with a with an older girl and like they wants to. And it was forbidden to see her by his uh, uh, by his guardian, and then he comes back and uh, you know until he's twenty one, and then he comes back when he's twenty one to find she's already engaged to somebody else, and then he goes and he wins her over, and she breaks off her engagement with the other dude and marries him. Like, okay, like that's kind of interesting. But after that, I'm telling you, after he comes back from World War One, his he like works for the dictionary, raises a family, and like has chickens in his backyard is a don uh you know and like writes in his spare time his life is not interesting um and you know i i i just i can't imagine i cannot imagine a feature film that is going to uh, talk about his life in any kind of big picture sense and not add lots and lots of unnecessary and unhistorical drama because yeah. how could the, anyone yeah. possibly make an interesting movie out of Tolkien's post-age 21 life? You don't, I mean, gonna have a, you don't think they're going to have a high suspense scene of him writing a you know, strongly worded letter to Stanley Unwin. <laughs> right. Or like, uh, and, and this summer Tolkien has to grade exams and complain about it a lot. I mean, like, it's just not, uh, again, I, I'm not, I'm not saying his life, I'm not saying his life was bad. I'm just saying his life was not like dramatic movie material. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they'll have? Uh, do you think they'll have him uh, do a scene of him coming in and reciting Beowulf? <laughs> See, I mean, like 
that's interesting for like 30 seconds, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting for 30 seconds and about, and about, um, a couple dozen people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine them doing this film. Uh, if, if, you know, the intention is to make a film that will have at least some broad appeal, it's really hard to imagine them not taking a lot of license. A lot of um, license. Yes, exactly. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at a. I'm looking at the the daily the Daily Mail article talking about Nicholas Holt being cast as him, which is kind of an interesting. You know, that's kind of a cool casting, I guess. Um, I'm looking at that scrolling down. They have like lots of shots of people from the set and costume. It's like, oh, it's a cool period piece. Uh, and then, uh, and then I scroll down and I see a photo of, um, Elijah, Elijah Wood and, uh, Sean Astin and Gollum. And I'm like, oh no, yeah, there it is already, uh, right? There like, it is. I'm doing the film, but people are already doing it in just the media coverage. Yeah. 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 And so a couple people, Brian and, uh, Marielle have said they could focus more on the Inklings and that would be fun. Well, no. I mean, it depends on what you t- consider fun, right? I-, I mean, the Inklings also, not interesting, not dramatic. Again, interesting, very interesting people. And there's no question that hanging out at the Burden Baby with the Inklings would have been awesome. But I don't think it would be a good movie. Uh, I mean, like, these guys sitting there and, like, talking, like, debating literature and philosophy. And, like, hey, let's do a long scene in which, like... You know, Charles Williams reads a chapter from his, you know, latest crazy novel. Like, that's not going to be in the movie. Like, that would not be interesting. Um, so, so, yeah. I, I like, um, so I like Marielle's suggestion if they could do it like Midnight in Paris style, which is a pretty fantastic movie. <laughs> but I, first of all, um, have you seen that movie, Corey? I haven't, no. Oh, you, you should watch you should watch those films. There, um, there's a it's a trilogy from. Um, oh shoot, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, the guy who did Boyhood as well, uh, Midnight in Paris. What is Richard Richard Linklater? Richard Linklater. That's it. He's he's famous for these kinds of films. They're they're like um, Midnight in Paris is interesting in that. Uh, oh wait, no, Midnight Midnight in Paris is Woody Allen. I'm confused. I was thinking about before Midnight, but actually that would work too. Um, but anyway, something something where it's like you know, like a, a very indie drama with mm-hmm. good, um, like really really good, um, um, uh, uh, like you know, extended dialogue scenes, like long shots and things like that. Mm-hmm. But still, first of all, um, I'm still I'm still not convinced that you have anything going on in Tolkien's life that will be able to drive the dramatic tension um, yeah. in any kind of way. Like it's hard to imagine. What's the climax of this film going to be? Right, um, right. <laughs> what's like, the what's the arc? What's the what's the story? Is it is it about his producing the Lord of the Rings? You know, like that is. I mean, is that like that? Would the climax be the publication of the Lord of the Rings? I, I don't even know exactly what the climax to, would be. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Like if they did, I'd be. I'd, it'd be cool if they maybe just focused on his romance, or maybe just focused on his World War One experiences. But I doubt that's what they'll do. And yeah, it's hard to imagine. The other yeah. thing too is that people just like these films don't tend to do well commercially, like these like little indie films, and yeah. usually. And, and and so you know, um, like we we kind of went like the heyday of these kinds of films was like the '90s, where you would get a lot of these like forget Paris type, you know, um, uh, you've got mail type um, 
romantic comedy drama type things these kinds of films really just don't get made and don't typically do well commercially um, mm -hmm. um, in, uh, especially at least in the US market which means that usually when you're making it making such films you try to go super low budget indie um, because that's the only hope you have of, of, of not being a flop but it's I like I mean maybe that's what they're doing here but given that they have the Tolkien estate like they have the license for the Tolkien name it's hard to believe that's what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm more tempted to think that they're, you know, spending a lot of money to make this, which means they have to try and do something to make it more dramatic. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I'm, mm. I'm not optimistic. No, I'm really not either. And I mean, maybe it'll be, it'll, it'll surprise me. And, you know, several people are suggesting that like, you know, maybe, maybe it will just be a, you know, a quiet character study without trying to, you know, ramp things up into high drama and everything which is you know and sure. if it is awesome you know that would be great if if they want to do that or if they want to you know highlight like his academic career like his academic and writing life and stuff i mean i'm not saying i wouldn't be interested in that i'm just saying i can't imagine many other people would be interested in that it's, you know it, maybe they're just making this film for you <laughs> yeah, but maybe if so, then they, that's a poor idea, because I'm, I mean, I'll go see it. I have to see it. I'm like, you know, obligated to see it, but, uh, but yeah, this is not, this is, this doesn't excite me. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, we'll, we'll see, um, um. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see what happens, but I have so I've I have low expectations. I'm not actively. I have nothing against it so far. I mean, I know nothing against it. Um, I just have low expectations because uh, it's hard for me to imagine. But maybe it's just maybe that is is just a testimony to the paucity of my own imagination rather than to the actual likelihood of what they will produce. Who knows? Um, but as for the other thing, the Amazon series. I have been, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> I shouldn't need to tell people here in the film film world that I think this is a good idea, you know, and I, first of all, I think that, you know, and Dave, you and I talked about this on, on Twitter briefly, I think that a lot of people are overreacting to the Game of Thrones comparison that has been very publicly made um, about this. I don't think that when they say they want to do it in Game of Thrones style, that that necessarily means that they want to have it focused on politics and sex. You know, like that's, I think that that is, I mean, I'm not saying that it's impossible that that's what they're going to want. I'm just saying that I don't think that that's what that translates to. A lot of people are translating it that way. And I don't think that that's what that translates to. At least not necessarily. Um, I think that it... Um, I think that it means uh, it, it, it could mean nothing other than, you know, uh, epic storytelling done episodically, uh, you know, with like a high budget and great acting. I mean, it, it could simply mean that. Um, well, as a I, I will say as as one of the purveyors of the gloom and doom, oh, they're just going <laughs> to sex it up uh, right. um, pieces. I will admit that. I do think, like from what I've read in the coverage and stuff, um, that the which which there were signs of this um, during the sadly during the um, Harvey Weinstein Amazon Studios executives you know sexual harassment scandals. Um, 
but they were even then they were mentioning that um, Jeff Bezos had basically gone to Amazon Studios and told given them a mandate that said, um, you know, you guys have made some really great critically acclaimed indie you know kinds of series like Transparent. Uh, I want you to stop doing that, and I want you to focus on making one big cultural phenomenon like Game of Thrones. So I do think that is the primary goal. The primary right. goal is cultural um, phenomenon. Uh, it, yeah, is like a water cooler show that's like appointment viewing that you know yeah. millions of people watch and even more millions of people steal off the, right. <laughs> off the internet. Right. I now my concern is that knowing sort of the way people folks folks in this industry often think that there will be a there'll be a tendency for them to think um, if we're going to make a show that's as popular as Game of Thrones, what made Game of Thrones popular? Oh, it's going to be these various elements, and I'm I'm that's what I'm concerned about because mm-hmm. I do think, like when you look at um, um, when you look at when you look at like the coverage, you know, like the the Monday morning podcasts and and blog posts and articles that discuss Game of Thrones, there is at least as much attention paid to you know um, some bloody battle or some guy skewering somebody. Um, uh, or so-and-so's nude scene as there is to, oh, what a great character moment there was between these right. two characters, right? right? right. So that, I'm a little, and I, I'm kind of concerned that, that um, you know, I don't know, I guess I, in, the, in the abstract, I agree with you that, um, that like, the idea of, a, um, of an episodic adaptation is a good idea. Uh, what I'm concerned about is, um, for all the faults that I can find with Peter Jackson's uh, um, movies and the work that he did, um, I feel like at least I feel like he still demonstrated um, a, a certain amount of respect for the material and like a real concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm just you know I guess I'm I guess I'm expressing anxiety about whether they will if Amazon were to do this, would they manage to find somebody like that to put in charge of it? Right, right. Um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the one thing that several stories that I've read about it, and I've not read dozens, but one thing that I saw mentioned, which I did not know, Jeff Bezos is a fan. Jeff oh, Bezos really? is apparently a Tolkien fan. Yeah, and that's why he's that's been. That's why he was staying in the Bay Area and the, among the tech. Right. Yes. Hardly unknown among the tech folks in the Bay Area. Yeah, I know. But um, but that, that at least one story I read was suggesting that that's one of the reasons why Jeff Bezos himself took a hand and 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 steered it to say like we should get the Lord of the Rings because because he's a fan. Um, now again, as Mariel, as you say, I don't know what that means exactly, but um, I. But I don't know, you know, uh, it's, you know, perhaps, perhaps that would be, you know, if, uh, if there is some kind of, you know, fandom on his part, in addition to simply calculated, I think this will make us lots of money, uh, then, uh, you know, then, then, then that would, that would at least help. You know, the thing that's been most interesting to me is the reactions, you know, it's been making me feel old, frankly. Um, because I, I remember 
when the when the news of when Peter, you know, like Peter Jackson, just, I know I'm not that old, and I know many of you also remember like hearing the first news releases when like the Peter Jackson movies were being discussed. You know, when you first heard the news that a you know a feature film adaptation of the Lord of the Rings was was on its way. Um, I remember that, and I remember fan reaction to that, and I'm hearing. What I'm hearing from so many people sounds exactly like that, except with Peter Jackson accepted as canon. Like, and I'm, I'm just like hearing people be like, oh, but like Peter Jackson's treatment is so wonderful. How could they possibly do anything else? And I'm like, these are exactly the people who would have been like, oh, no, the books are so wonderful. It's, it, you know, it, it, they're, they're, they're totally going to ruin it no matter what happens. Um and I don't know. I've just been very. I, I've been sort of surprised at people's response to say, you know, people who say, "But the Peter Jackson films were so excellent. Why would we possibly need another adaptation?" I, I, th- I love the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. They are wonderful films. Do I think that they've done everything that can be done with adaptation? Heck no! Especially since if we were just talking about doing another trilogy of films, that would be different. That would be harder. But this is a totally different... I mean, as we've seen in some film, this is a totally different adaptation project with so much more potential to be able to do so... to cover so much more story uh, and, 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 you know, a much broader epic sweep. Um, I sure hope... That uh, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to see if I can get connected with Amazon. I would love to consult on this, and if I did, I would encourage them not to start at the you know at the unexpected party, but to start earlier to do a you know to do like the build up to do the to do something like you know the Entire epic story first of season should take place in Hobbiton. In Hobbiton, well, no, I'm thinking I'm thinking like start at you know have the first episode be. Um, like the the end of the of the battle of the last alliance or like the the loss of the ring at Daggerla at uh, at uh, the Gladden Fields or something like that and do you know like the third age you know I mean that would be it would be awesome but whatever um you know like basically get Get uh, get the fall of uh, you know the fall of the north like the the wars of the North Kingdom and Angmar in there you know get Gondor and uh, you know the 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 plagues and wars and uh, the ride of Aeril the Young and I mean let's do it like do do the whole thing show how the you know the War of the Ring is the culmination of the Third Age rather than this sort of isolated thing it would be so much fun, um, uh, but. Um, and uh, Mariel, in that case, we would totally do Tom Bombadil. Yeah, th- the arrival of the Astari. That's another great starting point. Let's do the arrival of the Astari. Why not? Um, anyway, I, I, I just, there's so much, like, this is such a different, I mean, I, I feel like people are underestimating. And again, certainly the Silm Film Project has taught me, you know, something about how this kind of an adaptation project is different from the feature films. You know, I mean, this just can't, uh, especially after doing, after doing, uh, you know, Riddles in the Dark, and then doing film film, I now have, I now feel more pity than anger for <laughs> for Jackson in in the Hobbit films, um, because uh, my goodness, I would never want to make a feature film out of this stuff, even something like The Hobbit. Um, this kind of storytelling, I like this kind of storytelling so much better. Um, but anyway, I, I, so yeah, like I, 
to, to me, it's such a different project that I, I literally, I just can't understand people who are like, but it's already been done. Why are they doing it again? I don't, I don't get it. Like, well, I think, you know, um, at least my, my sort of, to, to the extent that I have feelings like that, um, I have, uh, can you hear the banging in the background? That's good, <laughs> yeah, Wally. It's all right. Um, uh, to the extent that I have feelings like that, I think it's informed by sort of by by my wife's my by my wife's sort of role in the industry, where right. they're sort of like you know, we would prefer to see an appetite from the from the the you know the co- big companies that produce stuff for for new new ideas and new stories of the kind that someone like her would tell, rather than just like buying the same property over and over again. All right. So I think. I think that's part of it. Sure. I think the other reason, the other thing for me, you know, is, is sort of a, is like a, uh, which, which I'll, I think I'll readily admit is, is, is performing crit fic, right? Mm-hmm. There's sort of a, I, on the way, like, again, in the abstract, I agree with you. Like, yeah, this creates a lot of opportunities. On the other hand, I'm like, do I think, do I think, you know, do I believe that, that the, that the people once, once they, um, uh, end up, you know, working on, um, Working on a, a, an episodic, full, you know, long-form adaptation of *Lord of the Rings*, do I actually believe that they will look and say, "Well, now we've got room for at least one Tom Bombadil <laughs> Or in mapping out the season, are they going to say, "You know, is there maybe going to be one like weirdo in the room that's going to be like, hey, we can do Tom Bombadil'?" And everybody's going to turn and glare at him and be like, "No, no, we're still not doing Tom Bombadil." But right. you know what? We have room for another made-up action scene. Right. Right. Yeah. So sure. maybe that's not fair. Maybe we should. Maybe if people are going to do the adaptation, maybe we should. Um, um, maybe we should. You know, actually wait and see how it turns out, rather than making assumptions about what they'll do. Well, that's it. Um, yeah. I don't. I mean, I, as far as your first point about you know, would you would rather see them do new things than just you know redo the same properties again and again? I, I'm sympathetic to that, and I wouldn't say. For that reason, I wouldn't say that I would have pitched this. You know, um, I'm my 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 relationship with it is simply well. If they're going to do it, then I'm excited that that, and I think it could it could be good. Um, but yeah, so I mean, whether or not in the abstract it is a good idea for them to do this kind of thing, uh, you know, right now, uh, that's I mean, I'm perfectly ready to be convinced that it would be better for them to do other things. Um, but if they're going to do this, I think they could do it well. And I'm not, I don't despair that it could be done well. But the other thing is, again, like, you know, is it just going to be more action scenes? Are they going to, are they going to be true to the book? Again, I, I remember these conversations 20 years ago, you know, when, uh, when the, okay, a little bit less than 20 years ago, when the rumors of Peter Jackson's film came out, this is exactly what we were all saying. Oh my goodness. What are they going to do? All of these scenarios. Um, and now, and again, just it's, 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 this is why it's so ironic to me to hear, people saying exactly the same things while at the same time they're like, but Peter Jackson did it really well. It's like, well, doesn't the fact that we all had these misgiving, these misgivings and then it actually, the films turned out to be way better than we expected. Like, can't that serve as a precedent for us to like throttle back the panic and the assumption and to, to maybe suspend the assumptions that they're, they're obviously going to do it badly. That's, the fact that those two incompatible views, the, 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 the panic that it's, uh, you know, the, the assumption that it's going to be done poorly with the, 
uh, you know, defense of Peter Jackson as the as the uh, you know having already done it you know perfectly. Right. The, the defense of the guy who we previously believed would do it poorly. Exactly, and it's like, don't you guys ever? Don't you remember that we had we made these same we had these same fears about Peter Jackson, and it turned. Now that doesn't prove that it's going to turn out well a second time. It could be absolutely yeah. dreadful. But it might not, you know, so like, why should I, why should we just be gloomy about it? I just, you know, what I hope, I guess what, what I would, here's what I'm hopeful for. I agree with you that, that if they have people involved who are really, who understand the story, you know, as opposed to hiring some writers, none of whom have read the book and who will like go through and, you know, quick read the Lord of the Rings, um, um, uh, uh, you know, um, over the course of a week before they have to start breaking storylines, who don't don't know any of the background, don't dig into the appendices, um, you know, never looked at the Silmarillion. Um, my hope is they don't have people like that. Instead, they, you know, hey, this is a this is a good reason Amazon to hire someone like uh, Corey to help out with this. <laughs> if they had somebody who could look and say, you know, guys, we don't have to just follow the main story. No. There's all this other really interesting so storytelling stuff. that we can yes. do around events that are only loosely referenced in the main text yes. and maybe only have scant details in the appendix. Um, and that not only would that be interesting, but actually... Um, you know, I think a lot of the, I imagine a lot of the writers in the room would actually really relish having the opportunity to, to kind of work, you know, do some storytelling in an area where they, where it hasn't already been laid out for them. Yes. That's my hope. My hope is that they'll think outside the box and do that thing. Um, Me too. Me so. too. I Hire think... Corey. <laughs> yeah. I agree. No, I mean, I would, I would, I would love to do this, you know, and of course with me, I can't, um, I can't help, uh, but. Uh, but think, you know, it's like, okay, like I was too young when the Lord of the Rings came out. I mean, it makes me feel old. Several people, you know, both Karita and Marielle are like, I was seven or I was nine when the movies came out. I, I wasn't part of that, you know, dread and anticipation the first time. That's exactly why this is making me feel old because when I'm talking to folks on Twitter about this, I'm continually getting the sense of, Okay, you weren't around when the Peter Jackson movies are coming out. You don't remember this period, the last time it came around, and now I'm feeling old. Um, I, I was still, I was in college when they came out, and even I, I don't really remember, I don't remember being emo- emotionally involved when mm-hmm. the movies came out enough to have like a sense of dread. Yeah. yeah, I really. It wasn't until, and I really, really enjoyed them the first time I saw them, and it wasn't until. Um, uh, it wasn't until um, uh, it wasn't until I went back and reread the books after seeing the films right. that I started to see discrepancies and started thinking, you know, thinking more critically about the adaptation. So, right, right. So even I, I wasn't part of the um, the the sort of chorus of naysayers um, before before it came out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've certainly participated after the fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I was in grad school when the Peter Jackson movies came out. So I was, you know, I wasn't uh I wasn't in any kind of posi- uh position to be involved or, you know, there's no absolutely no I, I was I was merely another Tolkien fan at the time. Now that I've, you know, spent the last decade, you know, talking about this stuff and uh and kind of being in the world, I would uh I would love to uh, um I would love to uh um, 
I would love to be involved. That would be so much fun. Uh, but we'll, well see. We, we got to create some kind of. We need a Twitter campaign with a hashtag, Corey. That would be fun. That would be, I think it's too early, right? Because they're, 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 uh, that's true. They haven't even they haven't even acquired the rights. They haven't probably, acquired the rights yet. It's probably a good reason to be skeptical that they will. Yeah. Well, yes and no, actually. That's another thing that it's kind of interested me is that some people are like, what? How is this possible? Why, you know, why would the estate, because the the articles have been saying that the estate is in conversation with them and they're like, why would the estate even do this? I actually am not surprised because um, if you, so you remember the lawsuit, right? The big lawsuit that was going, that the, the estate was levying against Middle Earth Enterprises and, and you know, the rest of them about the, about the slot machines and stuff. Yep. Um, that would that, now, that there's a if you're looking for a respectful adaptation of Tolkien's <laughs> material that yeah. I know he would fact approve. Yeah, it's slot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slot machines exactly. Um, uh, right. So um, I all right. So um, that was settled. Right, they settled that lawsuit finally after 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 years. They settled that. It wasn't that long ago. Wasn't it like a year ago? Within the last year or something like that, they finally yeah, yeah. settled that lawsuit. Well, yeah, I remember sure. when I read about the settlement of the lawsuit. Um, there, the language. So, like in the statement, in the press statement that the Tolkien estate released, they released this like you know friendly uh, 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 settlement, you know, statement on the settlement. Where they, I remember language from their statement that said explicitly, like, and we look forward to working with them to, you know, working together with them again in the future. Like, you know, they they, they made they made explicit overtures in their press statement that, as I recall, that suggested, um, like, this is not like we have had this like you know uh, long and irritating lawsuit, but you know we're not burning our bridges essentially. So when it was released that they were working with them again, I'm like, actually, it kind of sounded like they were setting that up, frankly, in the uh, you know in their in their statement. So I was not shocked. Um, but um, yeah, anyhow. Um, well, also, I mean, people have to remember. Um, go back and read your Tolkien letters. He he was always of the of a mind like he was he was he was never um, he was maybe uh, skeptical of the entire of the enterprise of adapting the Lord of the Rings into a yes. uh, into a screen adaptation and was never very satisfied with any of the treatments or scripts that he received. But he wasn't, you know. But the fact is, what we have is a crap ton of letters between between him and the folks wanting to adapt it, um, not. One single letter from him saying, "Nope, won't do it." Yes. He was always of a mind to like, you know, he was always perfectly fine with doing it. Um, and and people should remember that his conditions were either significant creative control or big bag of money. Yes, uh, and he was perfectly fine with saying, "You can have it," and uh, as long as I get a big bag uh, of money, you know, yeah, just yeah. give me a big bag of money. You can have it and do whatever you want to. Uh, it's I'm very skeptical. It'll turn out fine, but I don't care. <laughs> yes, yes. Again, he he didn't I, seem to he didn't seem to have all these um, he didn't seem to have all these concerns about um, films ruining books or anything that we no, seem to have. Right? No, no, not at all, um, not at all. And in part, I suspect it's because film was in a different cultural place then than it is now. I think. Yeah. Um, I think that he did not imagine a world in which film could actually supplant books 
you know, as like, uh, or like sort of infringe upon the cultural place of books. Um, uh, so I, I personally, I think that that's a, that that's a big part of it. But, um, Marielle said, exactly. So would most fathers, I think that have four college tuitions to pay for again, boring life, you know, family always just trying to figure out how can remember this is a guy who graded extra exams in the summertime for ex- to make ends meet so that he could pay for Christopher's medical bills and and uh, and put his kids through school. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, he was he was just interested in uh, um, in in in, uh, in in providing for his family. Um, yeah, and again, people do always forget, you know, when people are like, oh, what would Tolkien say? I would, I always say to them, let's not forget, Tolkien sold the rights. <laughs> like, he had the rights, he sold the rights, uh, you know, so, yeah, definitely. Um, yes. Now, now, slot machines, that's a whole other Slot machines, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I, I I suspect he would strongly disapprove of that whole uh, endeavor. <laughs> I agree. That I think is that's is a, a very different thing. His work being used to brand orc work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think he would have some very strong words to say about that. On the other hand, I have played the, some of those Lord of the Rings um, slot machines. That are actually really fun. <laughs> Con- confessions now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well. Um, well that, now there's an interesting question from Nick Palazzo. How would Tolkien feel about Lord of the Rings Legos? Oh, I think he'd be fine with it. I think so. I don't think he would strongly object to the Lego Legos. sets. I mean, Legos Legos seem seem you know sort of like in essence are I think are 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 the sorts of things that he was very supportive of, you know, like kids playing, building their own, do it. like Legos are like the ultimate physical world building tool. Yeah. And he liked, you know, his kids having, uh, you know, like bricks, like blocks to play with, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nick, he did complain about little plastic toys in relation to Snow White, but there he's, t- we're talking about like little, like figurines, you know, like just, buying plastic junk that will then, you know, that's related to the movie that will then just sit around. So he, you know, like, but Legos are, I don't know. Legos are, Legos are not exactly the same thing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll, um, I guess, uh, uh, we'll, Keep a close eye on developments. Definitely here. keep a close eye on developments. And as far as you know, Nick, you were asking about wouldn't um, if I did consult on the on the Lord of the Rings uh, film, w- wouldn't that impinge upon you know season fifty to fifty five or whatever it is when we get to the Lord of the Rings in film film? No, uh, because even if I were, even if like everything worked out perfectly and I were to be like the, you know, the, this major creative consult, uh, on the film, I have no doubt that it would not end up being exactly my, I I, I think it would be cathartic to like do it the way I would want it to be done (laughs) rather than the way... by the time we get there, it'll be time for another reboot. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be it'll be it'll it'll be time for another reboot. Exactly. It'll be at least five years from now, which means it'll be fair game. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, five years before we get that. to the Lord of the Rings? Are you kidding me? It's gonna be five years no, before we oh, get to Tour and Tour and Bar. 
Yeah, of course, of course it'll be much longer. I'm just saying that if it's five years or more, it's fair game for reboot. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. Right. Um, okay. Uh, so. Maybe uh, if this works out, Amazon will buy Dresden Files and adapt that next. Hey, that would be interesting to see done well. That would be a good uh, series as well. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Hey, I have an idea. Let's talk about the Silmarillion now. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, no, wait. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about the Silmarillion, but not yet about episode five, because so we had, uh, we had, a, so Nick was reporting some pushback. So they just did, they just did the full outline of the Kinslaying. So we have to go back and spend like a third episode now talking about the Kinslaying, apparently. Um, uh, um, okay, so, okay, yeah. Um, Nick says that everyone hates the fact that we wanted to have Galadriel involved. Like there was vehement pushback against the idea of, so we, we were suggesting, as I recall, and I'm kind of taking people's words on this cause I never remember what I say. So we were, t- we, we were saying that Galadriel was going to be like, she was going to be with the, with Fingolfin's folks. Right. Uh, and they're the ones who are charging in, against the elves on the bridge because they see the elves on the bridge shooting the Feanorians and it looks like an ambush and the confirmation of everything that Feanor said about like how they're being held prisoner by the Valar and here are the um, here are the Teleri being like the instruments of the Valar to uh, you know to entrap and ambush uh, the Noldor and prevent them from leaving so Fingolfin charges uh, to take the bridge and to prevent them from killing the Noldor, uh, from shooting the Noldor. And um, and we had Galadriel charging with them and then stomping when she saw her mom up on the, uh, up on the bridge. Um, and so the objection was uh, for her that, like, why would she be charging at all? Um, and that she uh, uh, she doesn't actually commit violence, but we had talked about wanting uh, her to uh, be like on the cusp of uh, uh, of uh, of committing violence, and people really really hated this. Apparently, um, why? My question, my first question is, what is the motivation for hating it? I can imagine two, right? One, that it just seems out of character for her to even contemplate violence against people that she would consider her own people as they're her mother's people, right? So she's half Teleri, half uh, Noldor, so why would she automatically side with the Noldor to the, to the extent of actually even contemplating violence uh, against uh, the Teleri? Um, I, um, I, I, I can see that. And the second would just be the desire to, like, the hatred of seeing Galadriel make a bad choice like that, essentially. Um, See, I don't like the idea of... Of the possibilities for Galadriel, right? There are basically three possibilities, right? Either option one, she uh, fights or at least goes to fight on the side of the Noldor. Option two, she goes, she fights or goes to fight on the side of the Teleri. Option three, she does nothing, right? Of those three options, I think her fighting on the side of the Teleri is to me the only unacceptable one. I don't, I, I do not see that happening. The reason I don't see that happening is, uh, first of all, why is that any less objectionable 
than her fighting on the side of the Noldor against the Teleri, right? If she's half Teleri, she's also half Noldor. Uh, and she has more reason to believe, because of the way she's come in with the Noldor and still sort of under the influence of Feanor's speech, even if she was resistant to it. Um, nevertheless, like, she has lots of reasons to be suspicious about what the Teleri are doing uh, and lots of reasons to be kind of biased uh, in favor of the Noldor here. Um, uh Exactly, Marielle, and she doesn't know who started the fight. So I, I can construct a psychological state in which she comes in and thinks suddenly, shockingly to herself, that the Teleri are the bad guys here. It's hard for me, uh, much harder for me to see um, that she... Uh, that she, you know, is going to come in and... and uh, um, uh, and think and 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 perceive that like the Noldor are doing something wrong. It just doesn't work with how we've set it up. I don't like it. I don't think it works. But the, the second thing, the, for me, the most important thing. I want to resist. I very strongly want to resist. Depicting in our uh, version of Galadriel, Aragorn's statement uh, that. On Galadriel, there is no stain, right? When he leaps to defend Galadriel in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, Speak no ill of the Lady Galadriel, he says to Boromir, right? On her and on all this land, there is no stain. Um, First of all, Aragorn's wrong when he says that. Aragorn is wrong. He is defending his grandmother-in-law, and that is great. He may actually believe it. It is not true. It is not true. Galadriel has a stain. She has more than one stain on her. Um, So I, I absolutely do not want to depict a pure as the driven snow Galadriel all the way through. Galadriel... I, I I think that she she needs to go through a repenting process. I think that her story is going to be a more. It's first of all true to. Of course, there's so many different versions of Galadriel. You can say that any one of them, any version, is true to a version of Tolkien's Galadriel. But um, my favorite of the Galadriel threads is a Galadriel who screws up, a Galadriel who is overproud, a Galadriel who needs to repent, and takes longest, in a sense. Uh, She's not just the last of the Noldor left. There's a reason she's the last of the Noldor left. She's the last of the Noldor left because she has some of the biggest issues of any of the Noldor. It takes her that long to work out her issues before she goes back to Valinor. Um, There's a reason why she doesn't... There are several reasons, perhaps, why she doesn't go back to Valinor, you know, go back to Elvenholm at the end, you know, after the War of Wrath, and they're not all admirable. Um, Anyway, so I I, I think it's... uh, um, I know that there is something very attractive in Aragorn's version of things, right? In Gimli's version of things. Seeing her as just like the one up on the pedestal. And I can't wait. I can't wait to do Goadriel's story, right? To show her as a complex, problematic figure, 
who is not doing things great. She's not turning green and stuff, but she is still like she's got issues, right? Remember, in a sense, what we get with Goadriel, and this is the thing that's to me most interesting about the different versions of Goadriel that we see Tolkien contemplating in his later writings. And there's a reason, this is also the reason why I dislike most the most the loftiest Goadriels. He wants to make Goadriel like she's like the female fan, the female fanor, essentially. She's like, you know, she she becomes like second greatest of all of the Noldor. Right, Fanor is still the greatest. I mean, there's there's nobody who had greater skills, right, greater potential than Fanor. Goadriel grows and grows and grows pretty quickly until she is like almost as great, but not as great, not quite as great as Fanor, but but greater than almost anybody else. But guess what? Guess what happens to the characters who are the greatest? They are the ones who experience temptation, and most of them fall. Right, the fact that Goadriel repents. Um, I would love to show Galadriel. Remember like in season two when we were doing fall a lot and we had Galadriel, uh, no, not, not Galadriel. We had like Fanor and Melkor, both of them, right? We had, we, we were talking about like that point of no return, like that there's a, there's an earlier point where they in their hearts are like choosing the wrong direction, right? But Still, it's not until the, there, there comes a point when, when, when they, they cross a line from which they can't come back. And we were talking about how for Morgoth, that should be the darkening of Valinor, right? After he destroys the trees and returns to Middle-earth and sets himself, like, he's, he's, there is no, no, no more repentance. He could conceivably have actually repented as he was faking it before, but now he's he's set himself in motion. With Feanor, it's the same thing, and I think that that moment is not the kinslaying, but the burning of the ships. Right, The burning of the ships is Feanor's point of no return. He is done after that. He cannot repent after he burns the ships. Galadriel, the glory of Galadriel's story should be not that she never does anything wrong, not that she's always everybody's favorite character who's always like, who upon her there is no stain. The glory of Galadriel's character is that she'll be another one of those great and mighty high ones who has the potential to fall and who almost does, but doesn't cross the line and does repent in the end and is wholly redeemed at the end of the story. That is the cool thing. And to to take that and to reconcile that with Aragorn's admiration and Gimli's adoration in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? I love that. I love the the fact that like the, the way in which they're gonna look to the way that the audience could potentially receive that line, right? When Aragorn says, Upon the Lady of Lorien there is no stain, right? Um and you know that Imagine, and I'm saying, I'm not saying we literally do this, but I'm sort of like imagining the Galadriel character sort of looking into the camera and like exchanging this glance with the audience. Like, you know, I know that that's not true. And yet we can see why Aragorn would say that, right? And in a sense, it's true, right? Not literally true. Not that there never has been any state. But anyway, do do you see what I mean? I mean, like, that's so much more powerful. Um, And I think, this is why I think for me, um, the the final versions I find very disappointing and I'm really glad Tolkien did not implement 
the final versions of Galadriel, you know, as he was contemplating Galadriel and making her more and more lofty and just like having no part in the kinslaying and having no, uh, and, and, and having no truck with Feanor from the beginning, setting her up as this wholly independent one who just came to middle earth on her own and didn't even cross the Helcaraxa or anything because she was always this like perfect one who was always trying to do everything right. That story that fi- I mean, I would, and I would say this to Tolkien's face, is I don't think that is true to the rest of Tolkien's stories. It doesn't fit with the rest of Tolkien's stories. That's not how the greatest ones act. It's not the kind of career path that the greatest ones have, right? That's a weaker story than the stories that he tells of other people. Not even, like, Gandalf has that, right? Um, so... So I absolutely do not want Goadriel in the kinslaying to be all like, no, everyone put down their arms. This is wrong. Right? Like that's, I'm not saying nobody does that. Finarfin does that, but not Goadriel. I don't want Goadriel to be, I want Goadriel to be feisty. I want Goadriel to be uh, impetuous. At, especially at this stage in her life, she should be making boneheaded choices. I'm cool with boneheaded choices. I want her to have. I think that um, because she is, she knows she's great. She is smarter than most people. She's more powerful than most people. And she knows it, even though she doesn't get the respect because she is, A, in the youngest generation of the elves uh, involved here, and also, and B, a girl, right? So, you know, but she knows her own worth, and she wants to prove her own worth. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, so I absolutely don't want her to be like, I shall do harm to none. And I am the only one who sees that this is all, that this is all terrible. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that's my rant about Goadriel and why Goadriel should, uh, why I want Goadriel to do stuff wrong and why I'm okay with her. Now, like, again, should I, do I want her like slavering for the blood of the Teleri, you know, and like licking their blood off her weapons? No, I don't want that. Um, but do I think that it's, because first of all, think about the charge, right? She participates in the charge to the bridge. I am not sure that any of them, um, I think there should be this moment where as they're charging to the bridge, like they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what they're going to do. I don't think they're charging with weapons out being like, we're coming to slaughter you, right? It's much less certain than that. All they see, they see the Teleri shooting the Noldor. Right on the ships, and they think this is a, a setup. They think this is a trap, right? They think that the 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 the, the Feanorians have been set up by the Teleri, and that the Teleri have been assigned to slaughter them. That's how it looks to them. So they are rushing up with just the only thought in their head being this must stop, right? And then again, it's going to escalate. Just as the Teleri go out to the ships uh, to, to, to fight with the Feanorians, not with the intention of killing them, but with this saying like this, you must not do this. You must stop doing this. And it ends up escalating and coming to blows and people getting killed. And I think that's, what's going to happen with Fingolfin too. So again, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying that not only am I not saying that Galadriel is charging with a bared weapon, screaming for the blood of her kin, None of them are doing that. Fingolfin's not going to do that either, right? They're just rushing forward. I think they're all rushing forward barehanded, right? Um, and they don't know what's going to... And then when they get up there, then they're, then fighting begins and weapons are drawn and people are killed. And I think Goadriel stops before that happens. I'm fine with that. I don't. Again, I don't need her to shed blood. I don't need her to even engage in fighting. Um, but uh, But... 
I don't see why she should not charge, right? She should not be trying to stop what's happening. Goodness, even her own empathy for the Teleri should make her want them to stop, right? I mean, why are you killing? Why are you killing? Why are you shedding the blood of your kin? Stop it, right? I, I'll physically restrain you from doing that if I have to, right? Why need there be anything else in her mind? And that's the whole... That's the whole point of the... Um, and then, of course, but then, then they remember we said that they turned their arrow, their arrows on them, and so some of the uh, some of the Noldor, including Fingolfin's sister, right, um, are killed before they even they even get up there, right. So again, like the whole the misunderstanding of the situation on both sides, it's what could make the Kinslaying so tragic, right? Um, and not just tragic in the sense of sad stuff happens and lots of people die. That's cheap tragedy, right? But real tragedy, where bo- neither one, none of them are really in the wrong, except Feanor. None of them are really in the wrong. None of them are intending to do anything horrible, but bad stuff just keeps happening because it looks really bad, and they draw logical, sensible, understandable, but incorrect conclusions based on what they're seeing, and the next thing you know, you know, people are dying. Um... So, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, this is, this is why I, that is my defense. That is my defense of Goadriel charging the bridge. Um, I could be convinced, I'm going to be very hard to convince that she's just going to stand aside because I don't want sanctimonious, stainless Goadriel. Uh, in I, I think that that I think that stainless Goadriel is not only an uninteresting story. I think it's an untolkien story. And again, I would say that to Tolkien's face about his version of the later Goadriel. Um, uh, so yeah, that's my rant <laughs> about Goadriel. I wasn't planning a rant, but there it was. What do you think, Dave? I've not let you get a word in edgewise for like fifteen minutes now. Uh, mostly agree with that. Mostly agree with that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I've been I've been summarizing your arguments on Twitter. <laughs> okay, that's good. Well, um, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think I think the main thing, my primary concern, is um, to to make sure make sure that the story arc um, ends. So, so when 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 Tolkien was doing his Galadriel um, 3.0 um, um, sort of you know kind of pass or retcon, yeah, I feel like he was. I feel like that that was with the mind of maybe revising the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. in some way, mm-hmm. because I don't think Galadriel 3.0 is especially like like the Galadriel 3.0 story, at least as far as I recall doesn't provide a satisfactory explanation for Gladriel's Gladriel's sort of um, um, you know comments at the end of the encounter with Frodo at the mirror right the sort of yes. I passed the test I passed the test I, did, yeah. I will diminish go into the west right like yeah. that doesn't there's no explanation for what, what test why does she have to pass a test to exactly. earn her way back into you know and maybe we're reading between the lines a little bit there but like the implication is she had to pass that test to return. Why did she, if she's like, you know, if she's blameless, why did she have to pass the test? Um, so, so I, w- I want to make sure whatever story we do provides some justification for that. Um, now, sort of the, 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 one of the comments that was made in the questions was, well, she doesn't have to be, she doesn't have to be guilty of the kinslaying to not, to, to, to 
be guilty, right? She right. can be guilty of rebellion. Here's the thing, though, like, if we want to show this on screen in a way that makes sense, if we want to leave the viewers with um, a sense that she's guilty uh, and that they're, you know, and that there's a and build up a story where she, there's some reason why she can't return. She's not ready to go, but she's banned from Valar, mm-hmm. Valinor, and she can't go back. There has to be some lingering, there have to be some things on screen, some, uh, some very clear things. Um, that the that the audience can remember have burned into their brains of Gladriel did this and Gladriel did that and hence she doesn't feel like she has the right to you know return or she still feels like her redemption isn't finished so yeah you know like, does it have to be the kinslaying no but um, being an active participant in that if not you know if not one of the perp- main perpetrators still being a being you know having some blood on her hands is is a convenient way to 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 um to to portray that so that's all all i all i'm looking for i you know like i agree she i don't like the idea of her being so here's the thing if she if she um if we decide well we don't want her to be a participant in this um but we still want her to be guilty so what we'll do is we'll play up her role in instigating the rebellion um the thing is that it's just going to seem really weird and conflicting if on the one hand she's going, you know, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's head to, um, uh, let's head to, um, to, you know, let's stop listening to the Valar. Let's head to Middle Earth and win dominion over things. And then ne- the next thing, you know, she's um, running around encouraging everyone to put their weapons down and make peace. And you know, like it's a, conf- it's a, we- it's sort of a weird, um, oscillating character. Um, yes, I'd rather her be. I'd rather see her be um, much closer to. Um, uh, Feanor at this point, yes. Than she is toward the end, so that we have a nice, so we have a story arc that we can tell, so that she actually has character development over the next, you know, two thousand years. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I mean, her her weakness is desire for rule and dominion. You know, yeah. like all very powerful, very you know, very uh, 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 very capable characters, the temptation is to carve out a large scope for their talents, right? Uh, you know, to, to make sure that their talents are appreciated and, and, and given full scope. That's the, you know, that's the temptation, right? She wants to rule realms. This is why de- declining the ring, right? Resisting the ring is going to be the capstone of her repentance, right? Because it is her turning away from the thing that she has most wanted, um, she wants power, uh, and I like differentiating her in this sense, even from her own siblings. And remember, she's the one from whom Melian learns something, right? Remember those conversations between Melian and Galadriel uh, about what happened with the Noldor and why they came and her resistance to telling her and everything? Come on, that's going to be so much more interesting. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, so so like I said, I'm not saying that she has to be like bathed in her elbows, bathed to her elbows, you know, in the blood of her kin. Um, she doesn't even have to strike a physical blow. I don't care if she strikes a physical blow. Um, but I think that her making an overconfident, presumptuous choice, the kind of overconfident, presumptuous, wrong 
decisions and interpretations that people are doing on both sides of this conflict, that strikes me as a very Goadriel type of like she she's uh, proud and overconfident. That's part of her problem, right? Um, so uh, so yeah, I I I, I think I, it's. I don't know. I don't know how doable this is, but maybe there's a way to present her as not not an instigator or a, um, or a, you know one of the main perpetrators of the violence or not a you know bloodthirsty warmonger or whatever but but then nonetheless to, to, to somehow whatever her role in the battle is make sure that it's consistent with this idea of Gladrill as sort of a person who wants to have her way yeah you know who wants to rule in, in matters that she with which she is concerned she wants her um, her will to prevail mm-hmm. so However, you want to portray that in this battle, um, uh, I, I think I think I don't, I'm not particularly fussed. Just make sure that it's not um, it's not Gladriel running around um, as a peacenik, but rather it's Gladriel running around trying to make trying to order things as she will, right? Like that because I, I think I think you're right. I think that's what we want to zero in on for as her as her primary um, her primary flaw, which is her her pride and her desire to rule, and so. Let's just make sure that whatever her role in the battle is, it's consistent with that. Even if it's her running around trying to stop the fighting, don't, don't have it. If if you so, that would be something I'd be fine with. If we decide that on screen we want her to be trying to you know doing something that looks like the right thing, but if that's true, then have her be doing it for the wrong reasons. Yes, um, at the ve- and very clearly because, for the wrong reasons. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want Goadriel to come off well in this episode. I, I want I, I don't I think that would be I think that would be uh, a, a disaster not a disaster I think that that would be a mistake um, people are predisposed to think well of Goadriel right she's the familiar character um, everybody is going to come with Aragorn and Gimli's perspective on Goadriel already in their heads right they not they're not going to need to be encouraged to look at Goadriel as a good guy I think that. She needs to be. We need to show her screwing up. She needs to do stuff not only which is unwise, but which is stuff that she is going to be ashamed of in retrospect and have to deal with that shame, because that's of course another big question. It's another thing that separates good guys from bad guys. Is not that the good guys never do anything wrong, but how they handle it afterwards, right? Um, you know, uh, thinking about the shame and the anger of the shame, uh, a, a, a favorite phrase of mine. Um, if feeling shame for your own actions leads you to uh, to to sort of submerge that in anger uh, and in anger against others, that's a bad reaction to doing something doing something wrong. So, um, so yeah, I I. I this is why I don't think. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, Dave. That if we if we want to if we want to show her like kind of taking charge and taking command and and trying to sort of wield dominion in a sense, um, we could we could show her trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons and trying to stop the fighting and and kind of seize control. But honestly, I I kind of feel like in the moment it's still just going to look like her trying to do the right thing while everybody else is doing the wrong thing. I'm not convinced yeah. enough that we could convey that powerfully enough. I think we need to show her. Screwing up, um, sure. Uh, so, 
yeah, I, 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 that's why I would like her to, I would like, I mean, I thought, I felt I was compromising already with people's sensibilities by not having her actually strike a blow against the Tulare. I think she totally could strike a blow against the Tulare. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, imagine how powerful it would be. I, I would like a visual picture of Galadriel with blood, physically with blood on her. She doesn't have to shed it, right? But, you know, maybe it's just, like, from a body that she has knelt next to. But I would like to show Galadriel with blood on her clothes or blood on her hands even, literally blood on her hands, right? Um, Or or on her face or something. Um, Because I would love to have that visual image, something we can juxtapose against Aragorn's statement on the Lady of Lorien, there is no stain, right? Um... Uh, having her have the ability to flash back to the time when she was literally stained with the blood of her kin. Um, And it shouldn't sound ironic. It shouldn't undermine it, right? This, this is not to say that Aragorn is, is, is a dupe for saying that again, it's the memory of the things that she has done wrong at the end of her arc, which of course that moment is, right? We're right at, we're coming up to the very end of her arc when she's going to resist the ring. As we're coming up to that and she triumphantly does the right thing and repent and, and is redeemed and, 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 and she's, and this is not a sudden thing, right? She's been making that decision. She's been moving in that direction. The memory of the thing that she did wrong is no longer the cause of just of grief and shame there's a kind of glory to that, right? There's a kind of glory to the memory of the thing that she did wrong after she's repented, after she's turned away from it, knowing that she, uh, knowing that she could have, knowing how badly she could have gone wrong, knowing that that could have been the beginning of a really, really bad trajectory, right? But she didn't go on that trajectory. Um, and she's, and she's repented. Um, anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm thinking this, (laughs) Brianna says, Am I making a request? Yes, I would. I am making a request. If it's possible, if you can see your way clear to doing it, I would like to have a blood-stained Galadriel picture, uh, if we can, uh, uh, somewhere here in 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 that episode. But as you can see, what little provocation it takes for me to take a third episode talking about the kinslaying. Um, Let's talk about episode five before we entirely run out of time here today. Are you cool with that, Dave? All right, let's do that. Okay. So, to my questions from last time. Do we revisit the Noldor? Um, A general thought was that it seems unnecessary. Um, And in in a sense, that is... um, kind of an answer to my question. My question was, is it going to be necessary? Are we going to have enough in this episode uh, to to really fill an episode? My concern looking at the outline is that this episode, episode five, and the next episode, episode six, seem a little thin. That is to say, at least based on our outline, it's not obvious what we're going to accomplish exactly in, in these episodes. So I want So that was the primary reason I asked, do we want to revisit the Noldor is do we need to revisit the Noldor is, you know, is, are, are we going to want that in order to make sure that the, uh, that the, the, uh, the episode is, is sort of full and complex enough. Um, but, um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, so I agree with that. Now I, I do, 
I think it's interesting, the suggestion that if we did have, have one, we could have Fingolfin breaking his sword here. I agree that that's a good suggestion. Um, my first, my, my primary impulse is to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm willing to agree that it seems unnecessary. I think it would be good to have this as a possibility, but um, I do kind of like this as a culmination, though, of the... It's... It, we had this scene, the confrontation between Fingolfin and Feanor after the Kinslaying, as essentially the sort of the culmination, the the end point of the Noldor arc at the beginning of the season. Um, you know, the Noldor departure from Valinor arc. Um, so I think uh, I think that's I think that's that's fine. Dave, do you have strong thoughts about this? I'm inclined to omit it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I like her. For some reason, it becomes clear we need it. For some reason, then I think the suggestion of doing Tingolfin and Feanor is a reasonable compromise. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, Angman storyline. So, what's going on in Angman? So, we've had skirmishes, but not full-scale battles. Uh, we need to have elves fleeing from the north. I don't. I'd rather not have elves in the north at all, frankly. Um, The only place we really need there to be Sindar in the north is Nevrost. If we want to have the people of Gondolin be a mixture of Noldor and Sindar, as is described in the Silmarillion. Um, Nevrast is the one place where they're described, you know, under Turgon is the one place where, like, you know, it's described the two of them really kind of coming together and forming a united, a united kingdom there. Um, so I... Uh, but Neverest is, I mean, geographically removed from everything that's going on, so I don't even think we need to deal with that. Um, we could have a few... El- One of the things that I was thinking here, pre-Menegroth, I think, I think we want to have the elves scattered much more not really living in any concentrated place. Um, and so, therefore, I think we could have, within this episode, we had the first encounter with the orcs before, and then we had the encounter with the dwarves and, and more serious concerns about the orcs. Um, I think that the, the pressure from the orcs are going to, is going to increase in this episode. Um, the elves... So that there would be some elves who had been wandering slash living, whatever elves do, not necessarily living in a permanent place, but kind of wandering around and enjoying Beleriand. Some of them would have been up in the north and would be running and bringing horror stories about what orcs had done, you know, to their families or whatever uh, up there. I think, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think that that would be, um, I think that that would be, Good. That would be a good way to convey that orc activity is increasing without having to show lots of, you know, unnecessary orc battles and um, and additional um, uh, sort of, you know, spending a lot of time on troop movements and that kind of thing. So that would be a good way to convey that, I think. Um, I had asked about Bulldog and what is sort of the point of Bulldog and how does he distinguish himself. Um, I think Bulldog is... My thoughts about Bulldog, um, I agree about the brutal discipline and stuff, um, and the disciplined army. 
that I think is Bulldog's job. The orcs, I think, are na- I mean, the orcs, orcs are naturally unruly, right? They're naturally uh, just inclined to fly. I mean, orcs left to themselves are always going about individually or in small groups and just, like, hunting and raiding and wrecking stuff. Like, orcs don't naturally form an army. They don't naturally follow orders. Um, This is kind of the downside of the, you know, ferocity, uh, rage, and hatred uh, with which Morgoth has invested them upon his return to Middle-earth. So, um... uh, So what Bulldog's job is basically to take the orcs, which are other... which are you know, potent potentially as a fighting force, but entirely undisciplined and not working together as a large group. And his job is to come in, beat them into line. Right. Um, he is the, he is less a general than a captain in a sense. I think if you see what I mean by that, he's the one who is an immediate, he's more like a centurion, you know, than a, a general. Um, he's the one who keeps everybody in line, literally in line, possibly. Um, but he's the one who, who, who forms them into it. So that's what, and that's how Sauron uses him, right? Sauron doesn't want to command the orcs. First of all, remember, I think he's going to find the orcs distasteful because this is not, this was not his vision for the orcs. I mean, he's to, what Morgoth did to the orcs is still kind of a, 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 a grievance, of of Sauron's right, um, so he's not going to love orcs and the whole orc the whole way that orcs have gone, at this point anyway, um, and that's going to see. Notice the scope for how this is going to again Sauron's overarching storyline right later on. Of course, Sauron is going to be doing the same thing. Sauron is going to uh, is going to uh, uh, be happy for orcs to be the way that they are, but he's not there yet, right? Um, it's going to be sort of a sign of his decline as Morgoth is declining. You know, when, when, uh, when Sauron comes to like orcs, then, uh, uh, you know that he's taken another significant step down that path, uh, to the void. Um, uh, yeah. So Tony, exactly. Have bulldog foreshadowing orc leaders like Azog and the great goblin. Absolutely. That's exactly where I see. I see bulldog as like the greatest great goblin, essentially. Um, that's his that's his job that's his role and indeed tony i would literally even think that i would think that the those great orc captains and generals that we see later on could be literally descendants of bulldog um they could be his yeah his distant offspring essentially and we could mention that you know like when bulg shows up uh at uh you know the battle of five armies there could be you know a memory of bulldog um uh, but anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> Brianna, essentially, we kind of mentioned, I think, something like that before. But yeah, Brianna says Sauron wanted uh, Dungeons and Dragons Dark Elves, but he got orcs instead. Yeah, that's essentially it. He was trying to make drow and instead he makes uh, instead he gets orcs. Um, I don't think that Bulldog could be the great goblin, Mike, but we could make him. Did we decide when's Bulldog going to die? When and how is Bulldog going to... I mean, we could always kill him off in the War of Wrath, but that seems a shame. Because, um, I mean, so many other things are going to get killed in the War of Wrath. Gondolin? Yeah, we can make him die in Gondolin. Somebody's got to kill him, though. I mean, it's. Got, I mean, if he's going to die, it needs to be a big... Uh, um... Uh, I think I think Fingolfin should kill him. 
Fingolfin could kill him. Win, though. The he should get a victory. Battle of Sudden he... Flames? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. What if he, yeah. Sudden Flames or Unnumbered Tears? Tony and David are both suggesting maybe during the Siege of Nargothron, Turin could kill him. But I wouldn't want Bulldog to be there. I think that Glaurung wouldn't want Bulldog because Glaurung is in control of the orcs himself. Um, so I don't think that I, I, I don't think that Bulldog and Glaurung would play nicely together. Um, so I, that's why I would argue against Nargothrond. <sighs> Hurin and the Fens of Serek. He could kill Bulldog as part of the rearguard action. Yeah, Nick was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. That would be cool. That would be a worthy death for Bulldog. Ooh, Marie, that's a really good suggestion, too. What if it's Bulldog who kills Barahir and the rest of the guy? Remember the orc who's holding the hand of Barahir with the ring still on it, right? And considering keeping the ring for himself. What if that's Bulldog? And then Baron comes in and, and, uh, and, and kills him. I like that. The only problem is it's a small squad of orcs, right? And Bulldog specializes in armies. Um, so, um, yeah. Oh, Rickle, right. Rickle is, suggest, is re- recalling that I had suggested that he be killed by Glamdring, by someone wielding Glamdring, the sword Glamdring, um, so as to get the parallel with the Great Goblin. Yeah, that's very clever. But it would have to be Gondolin then, and I'm not sure. I like the Hurin idea. Yeah, I think that I think that uh, killing Bulldog at the end of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears would be that would be I think that's my favorite way for him to die if he dies in the first age because remember he's not totally mortal right so Bulldog could stick around for a long time we could keep him he could he could escape the first age if we wanted him to because um, remember Sauron is going to be fresh out of uh, lieutenants in the second age. Um, I mean, I guess that's why he makes his own, right? With the ring wraiths. So that's fine. Um, yeah, if we keep him into the second age, he'd be dead weight. He's too much for the second age. We really want the emphasis to be on Sauron developing his own thing with the rings of power, primarily. In the Agreed. second age, I, that's why I think we need to we need to pick a, a glorious way for him to go out and battle Clearly. first. Yeah, well, Hurin, because see, what a way I like to Hurin suggestion. Yeah, what a way to emphasize the heroism of the Fens of Serek, right? Of the you know, the odds stacked against them. If uh, if Hurin and Hur and the you know the men of Dor Loman are standing not just against a whole big bunch of people, but against Bulldog himself leading the armies of of the orcs in pursuit of the Gondolindrim. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could. Uh, um, we have lots of time to change our mind about that, but I kind of like it. Anyway, okay. So Bulldog is is brutal, ruthless, merciless, 
and he's the one who gets all the... But his job is to get all the orcs going in the same direction, right? Out of personal fear of him, primarily. Um, he, like Ugluk, is not afraid to, to knock off a few heads in order to make the rest of them fall into line. Um, uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um, we should show Bulldog being deputed to lead the armies here. So we, we need to introduce Bulldog, not introduce him, we've already introduced him, I think, but we need to, to bring him in, have him working with Sauron, and show an army marching. Because we need, to, we need to, to get ready. I mean, things are about to get real down in South Beleriand. Um, things are going to be troubled soon. So we want to show this is more than just there are orcs in the world and orcs are a problem wherever you meet them. That we've established with their first meeting of the orcs from, uh, with Beleg. Um, we we set up exactly, Nick. We set up the eastern arm of the southern campaign. Bulldog is told, you know, get a whole bunch of orcs, get them all in a unit, um, uh, and get them marching south and destroy, you know, all the elves that you can you know, find as many elves as you can and destroy them. Essentially, um, is uh, you know will be the, like the orders that Bulldog will receive over there. So um, I think that that all. That that all works pretty well. I like the more I think about this, the more I like the idea of Hurin uh, killing Bulldog. I think that's I think that's cool. The Glamdring idea is fun, uh, but this is this is this is better. This is way better. Okay, um, Sauron and Shelob meet. So we had talked about uh, Thurin Gwethil scouting out this, finding the finding a that Ungoliant is gone into the south. B that uh, she's had a whole mess of offspring, right? So there are a bunch of giant spiders and sort of working to kind of set up a meeting. So we have Sauron come with Thurin Gwethel down into wherever it is that the spiders are, which is presumably... Where is it? Where do the spiders live? I mean, I know where the spiders live in the Silmarillion. Hang on, let's let's return to the map here for a second. Okay. Uh, Marie, so useful to have the map be the first slide so we can always use it as a prop when we need to here. This, of course, right up here, north of Doriath is Arid Gorgoroth. This is where the spiders are eventually going to live. But, of course, this works really well as the place to which the spiders retreated after the Girdle of Melian comes into play. So, remember, we're planning to do that. We're planning to have uh, Melian deploy the Girdle primarily as an anti, you know, as a spider repulsion device. At least that's its immediate purpose, right, as the spiders are coming in to take over Doriath. Um, so when the girdle of Melian is deployed, the spiders flee, and they flee to the north, and that's how they end up in Arid Gorgoroth. That seems to me to work really, really well. So where were they originally? Where were the, where were the spiders living? Were they living maybe down here in this southern forest? Is that where the spiders were living, perhaps? I think they should be living in the south, because um, uh, because uh, that's where Ungoliant, you know, she fled down to the south. So um, I think that that's where this... this so, I mean, I guess we could have the spiders just living here already, but I kind of like the idea of Sauron recruiting, like actively recruiting them, like come up here and, and you know, join with us and... Um, uh, yeah. I mean, we could have them over. We could have them nearer by. Let me see. Why is it that I want them to be far away and nobody else wants them to be far away? 
The reason I want them to be far away is that I want their involvement in the conflict to be Sauron's initiative, clearly Sauron's initiative. I want the importing of the spiders, because if the spiders are next door neighbors to the elves anyway, then they would already have been a threat. And the, and what's more, the elves would know about them, presumably, right? They would have encountered them before, and they would be like, hey, watch out, there are these freakish giant spiders, you know, nearby, so that when they attacked, it'd be like, oh, the neighborhood freaky giant spiders are attacking. Isn't that inconvenient? Um, I, I think that it's... Um, um, I, I I think that that's less cool than them coming out of nowhere and, and the elves being like, what, you know, monstrosity is this? Um, so I like, I like that as, uh, as, as a, um, as a tactic. Hakan says it would add boring logistics. Well, how come we don't have to do boring logistics? Like we don't have to have, remember the scene in the, in the Peter Jackson film, right? Where Faramir and his, and his Lieutenant have like the map and they're pointing to the map, right? To, to, to help everybody. It's like, and it's exposition time with help of a map, right? I'm not saying we do that with Sauron and Shelob, right? It doesn't matter exactly where they are Uh, in the film. We're not going to, you know, in the, in the actual show, we're not going to talk about it exactly, nor do we have to be like, and let us like, can contemplate like the 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 transportation of the spiders and like their supply lines and stuff we don't have to do any of that stuff the point is just the spiders are far away nobody else knows about them except Thurin Gwethel because she found them and Sauron is gonna even Sauron knows them or even Morgoth knows them not right uh and so Sauron is the one who finds so they're his stratagem right and all we need is a scene with him and the spiders he goes down to visit the spiders and he talks to Shelob and he's like come up and this is going to be awesome and you will get and so we have like a little miniature ungoliant Morgoth deal right where he's like I will you know we will reward you you will receive rich spoils if you come and help us and the spiders are like okay cool Um, and that's it then we need we don't we don't see them again until they invade Doriath, right? So like, why do we need any more logistics than that? It's fine; they can travel. Um, so their meetings. So, but I want to know. Yes, I know we're not going to show it in the show, but I want to know where they are, right? Um, so that's why I'm, I'm I'm wanting to find it because, and I want it to be further away. That's why I don't want it up here because it's not realistic to me. Remember, the Falas is 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 where's where the the. Hang on, this map is kind of washed out. Out here, right? This is where this is. Yes, over here is where Kirdan is, right? So there is no chance that the. I mean, the Sindar will have been all over this area again. I don't want. I don't think the Sindar are living much in Hithlam or Tarnafuin necessarily, um, but they're primarily around over here. They've. They've. They wouldn't. They, they would have encountered the spiders. I don't want the spiders to be old news, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, um. This, to me, seems like an excellent opportunity to indulge in geography. Absolutely, yes. Of Beleriand, its realms, and the spiders that live therein. Um, yes. Uh, well, Nick, no, I don't think it's... Okay, so Nick is saying that someone's going to make an accusation, the same accusation that I made about Radagast showing up in Rudauer. Um No, because time passes. We're getting... This is not... like They, they can... They can take some time to travel, you know, like there's no, it's not going to happen right away. There's going to be a few episodes, right, before the spiders come in um, and attack. So I'm not too worried about that. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Sure, we can consider how long it would take them to get there. But spiders are pretty quick. Giant spiders are even quicker. And they've got, what, at least months, weeks? Why not? Right? Uh... Again, my, the problem in the Hobbit films is that we're, like, cutting from one thing to another, and the implication is that not much time is passing. I mean, as far as we... There are, there are active cues that little time has passed. Um, and in a time which... In, in, a, in a period of time which the film is actually asking us to accept is only a couple of days, they're traveling, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles by bunny sled. Um, uh, I don't think that's a big deal. Uh, Nick is saying about what about Sauron and Thorin Gwethel here in this episode, but they're flying, right? They can both fly, Sauron and Thorin Gwethel. Um, that bunny sleds don't fly, but uh, gigantic bats do, and we know that Sauron takes a vampire will take a vampire form later on as well. Um, so Sauron and Thorin Gwethel can fly, and that makes for a difference, doesn't it? Um, uh, and also remember we've had. Uh, We've had time. The fact that we have Thorin Gwethel come back and re- she's been gone for goodness knows how long and she comes back and reports and Sauron's like, okay, that's a great idea. Then in this episode, we see them arrive. We don't know how much time has passed. We're still at a period in the in the season where, um, you know, it's not like the stuff that's happening now is the next day from the previous, the previous uh, episode, right? Um, uh, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Hakan, I know that uh, in the published Silmarillion, Ungoliant, Bredward, and Ungorthab is. I know, I know, I know. It's a change. I know it's a change. Um, but that's okay, right? <laughs> as long as there's a good reason and that that reason fits within like the overall spirit of the thing, there's no reason we can't make changes because we're telling a different story. And it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, yeah, we're getting them to where they're supposed to be in the end, Marie. Exactly. We will make Nungortheb into a land of horror. But honestly... This is one of the things. There are... One of the things that we're doing, with the Silmarillion especially, this I think will come in less when we're retelling stories like The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, In The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien comes down really close to 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 the ground. Right, um, he is very concerned not only with things like what are the characters thinking and why are they doing all the things that they're doing, but he's also concerned about things like what is the phase of the moon and you know what day is it and all that kind of thing. Um, those questions don't generally get asked in the Silmarillion, right? And what I find this has been an interesting consequence of reading through the. Return of the Shadow and the Treason of Isengard in the Mythgard Academy classes that we've been doing, which we just finished the Treason of Isengard day before yesterday. One of the interesting consequences of that is that you see, watching Tolkien's own process, right? When he first did, for instance, his very first pass at, which was pretty much an outline form, his very first pass at Frodo getting to Mount Doom in Mordor, when, when he first takes Frodo into Mordor in his outlines, he pays almost no attention to geography, to 
how much time it's going to take you to travel. He doesn't think that way at first. He's just thinking big picture, right, of the story. So he has what is in its a frankly unrealistic narrative, right? He has Frodo on the way to Mount Doom and he has Gollum betraying them. He's not betraying them to the spiders. He's betraying them at first, in that first pass, he's betraying them to the ringwraiths, right? So you have Gollum running like from the foot of Mount Doom to the where the ringwraiths are going out to battle the, the men of Gondor, or Ondor, of course, as it still is at that point. And he's, and then running back, right, in like a couple hours, right? Because, again, it's not about the geography. He barely has the map worked out in his head at that point. Tolkien instead is just... It's concepts, right? He's thinking about concepts. He's thinking about the, the, the big-picture story. Well, in the Silmarillion, we get a lot of... Um, we get a lot of... Uh, uh, of that kind of thing. We get a lot of, like, big-picture story. And I am pretty convinced that if Tolkien had ever done much, you know, much closer views of things, right? If he had gone down and told the story more like the narrative of the Lord of the Ring, he'd have made a lot of changes himself to what he did, to what is in the published Silmarillion. Um, Hakan, here's my reason. I do think there's a reason not to have the spiders there. The reason not to have the spiders there is I want them to be a surprise, I want them to be a surprise. I want them to be a surprise, not to the readers, to the to the viewers, to the elves. I want them to be a surprise to the elves. Um, and look at the map. Look at the map. Menegroth is here. Nen Dungortheb is here. Right? After the girdle is in place around Doriath, um, after the girdle is in place, it makes all kinds of sense that Nandun Gortheb and Arid Gorgoroth just to the north of Doriath would become this no man's land of like freakiness uh, which is haunted by giant spiders because it's outside the girdle and the elves of Doriath don't go there and they're not really concerned with it very much because it's outside the girdle. In pre-girdle days, the Sindar are going to be all around here, certainly in the adjacent places to Doriath. So there would be an issue, right? How could we not incorporate that in the story before? Why wh- wh- Why haven't we already had them talking about, like, okay, anybody else concerned about the giant spider problem? We seem to have a major infestation just to the north of us here. Is everybody okay with that? Right? Should we maybe do something about the giant spiders, like the offspring of Ungolian, seem like bad neighbors? Right? Could, you know, do we think we could possibly... Um, we could we could possibly increase our property values here by getting rid of the giant spiders that live just to the north of us. Um, so it's much better if they're not there. Let's. I remember. I want. We want Doriath. I want Balerion to be this little Balerionic paradise before the orcs come in. Before Sauron starts messing with it. Right. So I want the spiders to be. Uh, not only a brilliant stratagem on stratagem on Sauron's part and a shocking surprise to the elves, but I want this to be like I don't want any part of Beleriand infested in nasty and evil already. So that's my reason why. Uh, and again, it's the kind of thing that I actually think is in the category. I'm not saying that Tolkien. I, I I know that if Tolkien had done this, he would have made that change too. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's the kind of change that Tolkien does make when he goes from telling big epic story, uh, you know, big picture synopsis, plot summary version story, down to, uh, uh, down to, uh, you know, m- more novelistic narrative. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. 
Yeah, as Tony says, uh, Tolkien first thinks plot, then character, then theme, then logistics. Yeah, and that's interesting. That's interesting. I think that's uh, that seems that seems fair. I'm not sure. I might. No, you're right. Actually, uh, Tony, I was going to quibble with your putting character before theme, but I think you're right. Actually, certainly, Tony, the evidence that we saw on Wednesday um, about how the the Return of the King theme in The Lord of the Rings certainly seems to come after the character developments with Aragorn and be instigated by the character developments of Aragorn, right? It's like Aragorn's got to find a girlfriend first before he becomes the king, right? And his finding a girlfriend leads him to being the king in part. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, could they live under Aragorn? Sorry, what? I said story grows in the telling. And the story grows <laughs> in the telling, absolutely. Um uh, Hakan says, could they live under the arid Lewin? Well, no, because then they're in the dwarves' front yard, right? And then the dwarves would be, would be all over them, and or they'd be all over the dwarves, and it would be, it would, and again, it would become a talking point, right? Between, presumably, if the spiders were living over here, you know, by the arid Lewin, then you'd think that that would be an issue for the dwarves, and that the dwarves would bring it up like, hey, let's make an alliance with the elves. Hey, you guys... Um, you guys, could you, like, help us with our spider problem? Again, you'd think it'd come up, right? So, yes, they could be up here, theoretically. I mean, okay. It's f- my, my, my problem with making them up here is that that's not the path of Ungoliant. She goes she goes south, right? But maybe, whatever, I, I have no objection to that. If, if you want to make them up here, it could at least make the distance that Sauron and Thorin Gwetho have to cross smaller. So I'm fine with it. They don't have to be in the extreme south. It's all good. If you want to make them up here, I'm, 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 uh, I'm comfortable with that. Um, uh, okay, cool. Um, sorry, I'm going to go back because this makes it look like we haven't started again. And we totally did. Um, what, what do the spiders want? What do they get out of this? You know, I said we should kind of, in a sense, sort of recapitulate the Ungoliant or like, you know, kind of recall the Ungoliant Morgoth exchange. What do they offer? What does she want? A glut of life, she wants, right? So she doesn't eat light. She doesn't eat gems. She just drinks blood, right? So actually, Hakan, I like it. If they're living up in the arid Luin, that's even better, right? If the spiders are living in what is a kind of a barren, lifeless place, especially after they've been living there for a while, right, then not only the elves themselves, but even the forest itself, right? You know, Sauron could say, come and I will show you this forest that is teeming with life, you know, whose life you will be able to feed on and suck dry for, um, you know, for centuries. Um, yeah, yeah. So that we have the juxtaposition of the horrible, barren desolation that the spiders live in and the rich, fertile, uh, toothsome loveliness of Doriath. Yep, that works. Okay, Hakan, you've convinced me. They shouldn't live in a forest. They should live in particularly barren and forbidding mountains. Like it. Like it. Okay. Hey, let's keep going. Petty dwarves. What are the petty dwarves? Uh, So, I like this idea that the petty dwarves are exiled dwarves from the various clans. Um, I do think having the dwarves... The petty dwarves are clearly a problem. 
Right. I mean, I would say the petty dwarves are on my short list of stuff that's not really worked out, smoothed out very clearly in the published Silmarillion. Right. The petty dwarves, I think, are a bit of a blemish in the published Silmarillion. This is one of the things, one of those things that Tolkien hadn't fully ironed out um, before he died. Uh, Because, I mean, essentially, the petty dwarves are the original dwarves <laughs> before he made the dwarves better and her- and more heroic. Um, the, the dwarves were much sort of, um, much nastier. And, um, uh, and Meme, of course, is the father of all dwarves. Meme was Durin, right? Meme was the father of all dwarves, uh, in, back in the Book of Lost Tales. He was Meme the, the, you know, the deathless and ageless. Um, so, so yeah, so you had basically in the Silmarillion you have these stories which incorporate the newer like post Hobbit, post Lord of the Rings, more heroic dwarves like Azakal, especially uh, in his heroic role in uh, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, and then you have the like m- nastier, more menial dwarves or not menial. Venial, that's the word I was looking for. More venial dwarves um, represented by Meme and the role that they play in the story of Turin. And they were just basically Tolkien's old dwarves, you know, th- that played this, this different role in, the, in this different story. And instead of changing Meme, he, uh, you know, and making Meme more like, you know, Gimli, uh, instead he just is like, well, these dwarves are different, right? And it's, it's not really, uh, it's not really... Uh, I, I feel like you can still kind of see the uh, uh, the seams there. Um, so, so, so does that mean? Uh, <clears throat> so does that mean that Bilbo was either confusing his different kinds of dwarves, or was Bilbo trading in um, in old dwarf stereotypes? Well, see, that's the thing: is that when The Hobbit was written, Bilbo's stereotypes were perfectly justified. I mean, Bilbo was right. The, the Thorin and company are the old kind of dwarves. Um, they're the old kind of dwarves who rise above it at the end, right? Um, but remember, dwarves are not heroes, right? Um, uh, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what the Hobbit tells us, right? Except, of course, they become heroes uh, at the end. And by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, we've decided they're definitely more heroic. But anyway, whatever. I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to get bogged down in that. The point is, I like the idea of saying the petty dwarves are outcasts. So the, these there are some wandering dwarves in Beleriand from whom you know Meme will be descended, perhaps, uh, who are exiles from their their their, and they could be a mixture of various. Um, you know, dwarf clans. They, they, they have no clan, uh, and those who are clanless can be kind of, um, yeah. So I think that that's, I think that's great. I think that's cool. Um, I have an idea in particular. What if the dwarf, what if the petty dwarves are like peddlers, basically? Make them, uh, you know, like peddlers and tinkers, rather than great craftsmen and you know merchants with large mercantile networks. Um, they could have been m- maybe criminals. I don't even know why. Do you think they were outlawed? I mean, do you think they were outlawed for good reasons or for bad reasons? 
Are they victims or are they not victims? They think themselves victims, certainly. Um, do we actually want to make them bad? Or do we want to make them ill done by? Well, on the one hand... What about some... some is there some way to have, have our cake and eat it, too? So both? Often there is, right? Let's see. If we... If we make the dwarves Hang on, I'm pausing for a second because I'm thinking to myself, what do we need the petty dwarves for? Meme. Is there anything else apart from meme? Are we ever gonna want the petty dwarves again? Are we gonna do we see do we see including the petty dwarves into other stories other than Turin Turambar's stories? Which um <clears throat> which dwarves do we want to have it be that murder a thingle? I mean I, I think that's not petty dwarves. No. But that's a pretty that's an uncharitable thing those dwarves do. So yeah. if we would like there to be untrammeled heroic dwarves, we could always voice that off on petty dwarves. Well, no, because it's the it's the dwarves of, in the in the in the Silmarillion. It's the dwarves of Nogrod who kill Thingol and have the war with Doriath, and I'm still fine with that. I I I I, um, I would rather it be with one of the big dwarf houses that that happens. Um, and we were kind of setting up the 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 dwarves, you know, the firebeards for that one anyway, last time. Thinking about the Nauglamir and everything and the jewelers and all that kind of stuff. I think that Azakal of Belagast, I like the idea of Azakal of Belagast being, and you guys were suggesting this on the discussion boards this week, be, like, awesome. He's, like, the heroic, the coolest, best, most upstanding, most honorable, most valiant of all of the dwarves. Um, I love that. And the dwarves of Belagast can be great folks. Um... In fact, I would even I would even kind of be interested in the idea that Aeol goes to study with the elves of Belagost and the elves and the dwarves of Belagost rather, and the dwarves of Belagost get like increasingly uncomfortable with Aeol, right? Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, Chris suggests that petty dwarves could align themselves with Morgoth and fight in some of the battles. Yeah, they could. So, so maybe um, if we go that route, yeah, maybe petty dwarves are simply evil dwarves, um, or even like the what if petty dwarves are like the orc version of dwarves, like dwarves that have been corrupted, mm. uh, and maybe they've just been less malleable to uh, to the actual sort of physical corruption. You know, and then maybe mean maybe mean becomes like. A, a, a petty dwarf outcast. Like, he is actually kind of like an okay guy who didn't want to be involved in Morgoth's business. He's like a, he's on the run from Morgoth when, right. when, um, when Turin finds him. <laughs> and that's why he's like, that's why he's kind of, you know, sort of twitchy and hiding and things like that. Well, it seems kind of ornate. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure I like the corrupted dwarves idea. The corruption, I mean, like, the orc, the cor- the making of the orcs, like, that's such a big deal, you know, that I, uh, 
Um, yeah, and as Nick is pointing out, that that it does go against LA's work that they would be. Remember, the dwarves are supposed to be. They're not totally incorruptible in the sense of of you know not susceptible to moral corruption is all, but they're they're strong to resist dominion domination. Um, so I sure. don't think so, they can be twisted so in the same way. That, that's what I'm getting at, though. That they're a failed project. Yeah. Where, right. Where they've been kidnapped and attempted to be turned, and it really, really, basically fails. But they, but they aren't accepted back into dwarf society. The same way many of the, you know, the the sort of um, thralls that get released by Morgoth, you know, have trouble reintegrating in Elven society. So maybe they're they're a failed corruption project from Sauron or Morgoth yeah. or somebody. Yeah. Uh, but the result is you have these these um, these sort of bitter embittered outcasts. Um, well, it's just hard to it's hard to sort of figure out how to get them to where we want if we're going to go with the their their outcasts from dwarven society. It's hard to figure out how exactly to get them there in a way that that kind of makes sense. We could never explain it. I mean, there could be a reason. The reason that they were outcasts could be something that the dwarves refuse to talk about, just because they're generally secretive about inside things, right? Um, so, like the the leaders of the dwarves could be evasive on that question as to what exactly they did to be outlawed. Um, I. But I'm thinking thinking about the corruption project, though, or the failed corruption project. I'm thinking, see, they don't need to be corrupted to be embittered, though. If they're outcasts, they'd be embittered already. And if you've got this group of embittered dwarves who have already been outcast, they don't need to be corrupted. They only need to be recruited, basically. And that sounds like exactly the kind of thing that Sauron would do, wouldn't he? I mean, wouldn't Sauron, when Sauron became aware that there was this faction of the dwarves that were, you know, outcast, isolated, and, and embittered, wouldn't his first impulse to be to come alongside them and be like, you have been done so wrong. Come, I will help you win back your own, right? I mean, that's obviously would be the first, um, the first move that Sauron would make. Yeah, that's definitely true. So we could show that... Still, we still return to the central dilemma of why are they outcast? Yeah, are we saying we're punting? We're just we're just not going to explain it. I just I, I don't know. There's something about the idea of like maybe they're outcast because they're you know for good reason because they were evil, jealous, whatever dwarves. I don't know. For some reason that's not sitting right with me. It seems to I don't want them I, to be prefer, innately I'd evil. I prefer yeah. this to be a tragic element, like where yes. they're outcast for not so great reasons and then they end up turning to evil but at the same time I don't want the dwarves who outcast them to be totally unsympathetic either oh yeah I know that's that's the problem too right like we don't right. want to if they're just a persecuted outcast. minority right yeah. then it really paints the dwarves of Belkost and Nogrod in a bad light and, okay how about this how about this the dwarves are stone hard, right? So what about this? What if they are criminals, or rather their forefathers were criminals? So like if the, 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 the sentence for certain crimes among the dwarves is banishment, perpetual banishment, you and your descendants are not allowed back. Like you, you were kicked out of the clan and your descendants are never going to be let back into the clan. That is the, you know, so you're going to be, you're going to be expunged from the clan. 
and that way, on the one hand, it's justified. Like it's they like they committed a crime, right? They 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 did the deed. They're receiving the punishment, but the punishment is implacable, and the implacability of the punishment could be where. So, like the petty dwarves, which we meet in Beleriand, are like the grandchildren of the criminals. Right, and they haven't done themselves. They themselves haven't done anything wrong, so they can feel and have, and and we can have sympathy for their feeling ill done by. Like, why am I being outcast for something my great grandfather did? Um, and so, so we can show the uh, the dwarves of the Blue Mountains as being somewhat over, like too implacable in their in their uh, in their penalties against the petty dwarves and yet not have it be totally arbitrary or merely discriminatory um, yeah now Chris uh, Graham is asking us to say you know why did Tolkien call them petty dwarves like why petty um, Honestly, I don't think that petty meant to Tolkien what it means to us necessarily. I think that it means lesser. Like it's like they're the they're the they're the lesser they're, there's like the great dwarves and the lesser dwarves. Um Yeah. A couple people um are suggesting something like a dwarven caste system. I hear that. That's a possibility. I'm not a big fan Mostly because I'm not a big fan <laughs> of caste systems, and I think it's gonna that's gonna create an obstacle that's gonna be hard to overcome later on. Um, if we establish the petty dwarves as merely a lower social caste who are despised by their superiors. What are we going to do with Gimli later on? You know, is he just a high caste dwarf and we're supposed to expect that, you know, it's okay if he despises other... I mean, it's going to complicate things later on. I'm not a big... I'm not a big fan. Um, uh, yeah, Mariel, it would really impair our ability to portray the dwarves as anything other than prejudiced and wicked. Um, because for better or worse, it's impossible in the modern era to pres- to depict somebody as living in unapologetic prejudice and stereotype without being wicked. Like that is wickedness in the modern world. Like that's that's worse than cruelty. Um, so. Uh, That's that. I just I I have a hard time seeing how we're going to really overcome that obstacle. Um, no, Chris, the the hobbits. There are social classes among the hobbits, but that's very different from a caste system. Very different from a caste system. Um, the difference between the difference between. Frodo Baggins, Farmer Maggot, and Gaffer Gamgee is a class... Those are class differences, not caste differences. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
morally superior or inferior by birth is as horrific an idea as you can have. Certainly, that is certainly the consensus of the modern world. Yes. Yes. And of course, it's not always been the consensus, but it is certainly the consensus of the modern world. <clears throat> and I can't see a good reason for us to to try to buck that, which I think we'd kind of have to or be inconsistent with ourselves. So, um, I say we make them exiles, uh, perpetual exiles, and so therefore their descendants are ill-done by, but also rightly exiled. I think that, that that's the best thing I can think of that kind of accomplishes both ends. And um, But then, but we don't just have them an oppressed minority either. They do bad things, right? They will join with Sauron, and I think that we can... I, I don't see right away a role for them, but we could find one. Um, keep Let's just keep... Let's just keep that in our hat. Um, uh, there may come a time when we will want the petty dwarves before we get to Turin Turambar. Um, I think that they could possibly play a role during uh, season four, for instance. Um, they could play a significant role in the Battle of Sudden Flame, maybe? I don't know. Building up to that? There. We'll see. If we need them, we have them. If we don't, we can forget about them and then bring them back when it comes to meme. Um, and we've we've set the stage. Um, okay. Uh, I don't think we need to make them physically differentiated because they're not a different race from the other dwarves. The thing that's different about them is that they are poor and they um, are mixed Right, because there should be there should be mixed broadbeams and firebeards and even a couple stray longbeards among them. I would suspect, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going, because for some reason we're running short on time today. Um, so wait, so so is the agreement that uh, the petty dwarves are descendants of of criminals? Yes. So, they, so yes. the current generation is blameless. They're just embedded outcasts. But the original, the original exile or whatever was was justified. Right. Um, exactly. So that means that the the, the dwarves, <clears throat> the dwarves were were right in making that original. So we retain sort of the heroic core of the dwarves, with maybe right. a lot, leaving them be a little a little rigid and uncaring toward their um, toward the current generation of outcasts. Yes. And then the current. The current generation of dwarves are not inherently evil or corrupt. They're just, um, you know, they're they're in some sense victims. But then some of them, because of their bitterness, will be turned evil by Sauron. Yes, exactly, exactly. That that seems oh, that seems to me to work. Subtle, nuanced. Exactly. Now, Tragic. yes. Now, Tony Mead is reminding us that Meme and his sons are supposed to be. They're like the last of the petty dwarves, right? Um, so we need to we need to kill them off. I agree. Let's kill them off. Um, let's kill them off in the battle. We could, well, we could, there's lots of places we could kill them off, right? We kill them off in the battle of unnumbered tears. Um, we need to build them up before that though. We would need to, there, there needs to be a petty dwarf storyline where they get, they get recruited by Sauron. Sauron would recruit, would recruit them for a particular reason. Maybe they're supposed to. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
Well, well anyway, we'll come back to it. We don't have to solve this right now. That's not an issue for, for season three. Um, but keep in mind, we will keep in mind that the Petty Dwarves are due to be recruited by Sauron at some point, probably in season four. Uh, and let's leave it at that. We'll come up with something later on. Okay, kicking that can down the road. But this brings us to Menegroth, because the idea, what we, we, we in theory liked the idea that Menegroth was like the, the Petty Dwarves had settled in Menegroth and the other dwarves are going to kick them out of it. So that this is where the beginning memes complaint that the elves have come in and taken over the land and and uh, uh, and infringed upon the rights of the petty dwarves. This is kind of where that comes from, right? Or where that begins. And I think that's a really great idea. Um, there are uh, and 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 as well as the emphasis that you guys were making that it should be it should be the dwarves of the Blue Mountains, not the elves, who kick the petty dwarves out of Menegroth. That seems to me very important. I can't imagine Thingol and Melian coming in and being like, this place looks good, except it's infested with these petty dwarves, right? Let's kick them the heck out and take it for ourselves. I have a really hard time having Melian do that. (coughs) So having Menegroth be the gift of, like, the dwarves of Belagost, and so, therefore, having the dwarves of Belagost... Uh, boot them out <clears throat> first. But actually, can we have the dwarves of Nogrod do it instead of uh, instead of the dwarves of Belagost? Because, I again, remember, it's, the, it's Thingol and the dwarves of Nogrod who are due for conflict later on. And if Menegroth itself was initially, like, if the, if the, if the, the, the Firebeards themselves could represent Menegroth itself as not not only saying dwarves helped you in building this, but we gave this to you. Like we gave you Menegroth itself. That would be that would be kind of cool, right? So I I would love to have the, the, the dwarves of Nogrod be the sort of the primaries there. Anyway, um Though, of course, the dwarves of Belagost would be the ones that they'd primarily be recruiting to help them in the making of Menegroth because they're the architects, right? They're the builders. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony, I was thinking a similar thing, by the way, that the petty dwarves could be turned against the other dwarves. I'm, I'm imagining Azakal and the dwarves of Belagost destroying most of the petty dwarves in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, possibly... Um, yeah, Tony Mead is, is thinking of, you know, the way Sauron using the petty dwarves against uh, the rest of the dwarves in a similar way to how Sauron uses the Dunlendings against uh, uh, against uh, uh, the Rohirrim. That, that, that makes sense to me. Um, anyway, yeah, so Mario, exactly. That way, Menegroth is a gift of both dwarven cities. The people of Nogrod are the ones who know about it. And they are the ones probably who kick the the petty dwarves out of it, and they give it to Thingol, and then the dwarves of Belagost come and help them reconstruct it. So, um, yeah, David and I agree. That's the other thing I was thinking. It keeps Azakal a good guy, right? We, then we don't have Azakal being the one who is like, okay, I'm going to clean this out of petty dwarves. Um, we have the slightly more ruthless dwarves of Nogrod doing that. And then Azakal just coming in for the construction part, right? And being a positive help to the elves in that way. Um, I have one problem. 
Want to hear my problem? My problem comes back to the map. Menegroth is here. Right here. To the north of the A in Doriath, on the map, along the river. Practically in the smack middle of Doriath. A. How do the elves not know about it already? That's not too hard to solve because it's a cave and maybe they didn't know the entrance to this cave and so that's not a huge deal. But much more importantly, B, how on earth can petty dwarves be settled there and the elves have not met them yet? Right? How can we arrange that? This is, to me, the big weakness of having there be petty dwarves living in Menegroth. I love the idea. Is they stay in the cave and don't come out. Sure, but how do they get in? When do they get in? Where do they come from? Yeah, Mariel, I'm thinking they would have to have tunneled in from a heck of a long ways away. I mean, but, but Mariel, we see the problem there, right? Too? Do we want to have a network of subterranean tunnels that extends all the way out past the girdle of Melian? And goes right into, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the wine cellar of, of Thingol down in Menegroth? Um... I mean, yes, we could have those taken down. Yes, we could have the girdle extend down below the earth, right? Uh, Mike suggests the dwarves will have to get back in later. It's true. I suppose the ancient tunnels of the petty dwarves could be reopened by the elves of Nogrod, later on during the wars. Uh, um, right. Uh, lots of people are talking about how like secretive and, and shy and afraid of the elves the petty dwarves are. No, I'm cool with that. I don't have a problem with the petty dwarves being there. I have a problem with the t- petty dwarves getting there. That's my problem. Um, the only way I can see it happening is if the petty dwarves tunneled from, like, Arid Gorgoroth down, right? If the petty dwarves were exiled from over here, right, they were exiled from the Blue Mountains, where would they go? Not the plains, right? They'd presumably go to the other mountains, right? So what if from the mountains up here... So, but, like... Saying that there's a tunnel network that extends from the arid Gorgoroth all the way to Menegroth seems to me troublesome. Um, not necessarily insurmountable, but kind of troublesome. Um, yeah, Chris says it, that idea stretches credulity. Yes. That's, that is what I'm experiencing, Chris. I am finding my credulity stretched. Not to the breaking point. I could live with it. But it's a lot. Um, <laughs> a couple people are suggesting that all we need are some wereworms. I hear you. I hear you. Um...
Yeah, David, that does seem to be the more radical solution to the problem. Um, it would be much easier to have the grievance of the petty dwarves not be that they were settled in Menegroth and kicked out of it, but that they were settled in Nargothrond and kicked out of it. And indeed, Meme mentions exactly that. Like, we know that the petty dwarves were, in fact, settled in Nargothrond. Um, so we're going to have to deal with that when it comes to the establishment of Nargothrond. Anyway, um, we could simply put off the petty dwarves entirely, just postpone the petty dwarves until season four and the founding of of Nargothrond. I mean, unless anybody else can think of any good way to get the petty dwarves into Menegroth without having them have hundreds of miles worth of subterranean tunnels. Um, and yes, Nick, there is the concern that if it's going to happen in Nargothron, which I think it should, just for meme's sake it should, right? Because uh, um, meme coming and setting himself up as the king of Nargothron all by himself, right? Sitting upon the dragon's horde all by himself, which, by the way, you see the parallel, right? Um, the parallel to, to Thorin. Um, Thorin when Thorin is on the is in the on the dragon's horde in the mountain, setting himself up as king with almost nobody else there, like in an empty, deserted, destroyed kingdom, but a pile of treasure and uh, where a, near a dead dragon, um, that's meme, right? He's he's he is recalling the meme situation exactly. Um, and his own blindness to what's going is is again is like is like is like meme, um, and Fafnir of course absolutely yeah no meme is very Fafnir uh, from the very beginning I mean meme is uh, meme is the most Norse of all of Tolkien's dwarves essentially um, yeah yeah. Um, yes, when the dragon was actually killed by a man with a black weapon. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, the, 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 the connection, not to mention the fact that Thorin and Turin's names are almost identical when it comes to that. Right. Um, but anyway, whatever. Um, there's a, Brianna and Mike are both suggesting maybe Meme could be an outcast Longbeard. Uh, Mike suggesting possibly of the line of Durin. Uh, possibly. I could get behind that. But I'm not going to worry about meme right now. I'm I'm fine, by the way, with people don't want meme to be deathless. People don't want meme to be ancient, and we don't want meme around. That's fine. So what if we just... What if we just kick the can with the petty dwarves entirely? We don't even have to introduce them now. We could save them for the founding of Nargothrond. That would give us something else to do in Season 4, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so let's do that. Let's not have the petty dwarves be in Nar- in uh, Doriath at all, but we can still have... Um, wait, okay. So how do the dwarves of the Blue Mountains know about Menegroth? Do they know about it? Do they know about it? Is it their gift? I like it being their gift, though. But it's going to be easiest for um, 
it's going to be easiest for the dwarves to di- the elves to discover it. Hey, David, I like that. Okay, David Atley says, what if the dwarves are contracted to, for help building a defensible hall and they find the caves? Yeah, I like that. What if the... So, the caves are there, right? The thousand caves are there, but the elves don't know that they exist, right? The, the elves are, 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 are unaware uh, of the existence of the, of the caves. Um, and... The, they bring the dwarves in. They're like, okay, we need defenses. We need a fortification, right? So they're bringing the dwarves in thinking, let's build something, right? Some kind of defensive fortification here in the forest. And they bring the dwarves in as contractors. And when the dwarves are brought in, they're kind of wandering around looking for a good site, and they detect the, the caves which the dwarves had, or the elves had never detected before. And they're like, oh, no, wait, guys, this is perfect. Yes, they're, like, they're acting like exploratory geologists. Exactly, Tony. Um, yeah, yeah. That that way, it's still it's still you know they find this and they love the caves. Indeed, they can have an almost Gimli esque reaction to Menegroth, right? They could be going all you know. They could be uh, you know going um, going off about the the um, the wonder of the caves and everything, and uh, uh, and and you know, because then we have a we have a nice Aglaron parallel. Uh, I think that could work. That 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 could work pretty well. What, what do you think of that, Dave? I'm supportive. I like this idea. You like this, this is, idea? It seems to resolve some of the dilemmas that you were uh, uh, um, bringing to light. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Um, all right. and, we're, and we're and we're thinking the dwarves the dwarves don't find the caves and want them for themselves, right? Right, or some of them could. I mean, there could be we could show some discussions among the, there could be some of the dwarves who love them and don't want to give them to the elves, and so it's like a sacrifice for the dwarves to you know it's like a sign of friendship and sacrifice that the dwarves give them to the uh, uh, to the you know but maybe there are one or two of the elves of of the dwarves of Nagrod who are like we should keep them for ourselves. These caves are awesome. Um, yeah. Okay. All right, that works. Now, um, so Thingol gets Menegroth, um, where we talked about this already. So yeah, we're good. Um, cool. All right. Excellent. Outside Menegroth, we're, we're finishing up here. Um, we have uh, Cirdan, the elves of the havens, invited to join the Sindar in the safety of Menegroth. So once Menegroth is est- once they're establishing a fortification, the decision that Thingol and Melian should be making here is we need to consolidate. Again, I like the idea of having the the Sindar. They're just scattered. They're they're a wandering people. They they hang out all over the place, right? They don't have a central city at all, uh, perhaps. And now they, um, but they they decide now that the orcs are coming in. And there's more and more reports, and we get those those elves that come down from the northern parts there of uh, you know like south of Arid Gorgoroth and everything. But anyway, they're running down and saying, "Hey, the orcs are you know we keep running into these groups of orcs," and uh, and so they decide, "Okay, we need to consolidate." So the Sindar are called in, and they 
take up residence in Doriath and most of them in Menegroth. So we're going to say, so we're going to extend the invitation. Hey, Kierden the shipwright, uh, come build ships underground. And Kierden's like, dude, that, that's not practical. So he's going to, he decides that they want to stay at the havens because staying on the coast is really important. Um, so I think that that's, that's an interesting discussion that can totally happen and can <clears throat> be a great way for us to remind people of Kierden's calling, right? He's got to be out with the ships because that's who he is and what he does. Um, and and but he can give he can give them pearls, right? So this is where they get the, the they they get you know he's like oh yeah you've met these and so they tell him about the dwarves and he's like hey I bet the dwarves would like these right so you get the you get the pearls. Um, we have okay so. I don't think I like the idea of the Green Elves crossing in in this episode. I want to save the Green Elves for the next episode. I think there's plenty to do with um, the the fear of the orcs and the desire to build a fortification and the uh, the discussions with the dwarves and the uh, finding of Menag- of the caves of Menegroth and the discussion of like do we move underground the Sindar many of the Sindar not being huge fans of that but the dwarves like gushing and weeping at the beauty of the caves of Menegroth and and then setting together and making a nice collaborative project of it and then the the you know and so I I, I think that this all that this all works um, and Mike yeah. A chance for Celeborn's screen time. Celeborn can go visit Cirdan. He can be the messenger uh, sent to Cirdan. I agree. Let's give Celeborn some screen time. Why not? Um, do we even want a teaser, Marie asks, of the Green Elves? Well, here's my issue. And it leads me to my questions for next time. So what happens in this next... This is the second week in a row I've had this as one of my questions. But what happens in this episode? In our outline, we have the Green Elves come to Beleriand. Well, okay. Um, but so what? We're saving the like the, the big battle where Bulldog comes in and mows down the Green Elves and kills Denethor is not projected to happen until episode 9. Right? So if that's not going to happen, then what do the Green Elves do in the meantime? What is their role? in Beleriand, what, how does, what happens here? Um, what are, what, what occurs? It, especially if we make the Green Elves come in at the end of the previous episode, then, then what happens in episode, uh, whichever we're on, six? Um, so, uh, I'm not, uh, I, I think that, it, this is why I'm thinking we're going to we're going to want to save the Green Elves arrival for next time. Besides which, I, I, I like um, I think that there's enough in establishing essentially establishing the kingdom of Doriath is basically what, what one of the main things that we're doing through establishing Minigroth. Um I, I, I think I think it's OK. I, I think it's going to be enough for that to happen in episode six. So I would argue that they don't come into episode six, but I'm still not sure if we can't have a battle and kill off Denethor. I'm not sure exactly what role they're going to be playing at this stage um, in the Beleriand situation, what kind of impact they have um, if if the fighting's not already going on. Um do we have some fighting going on? Like the Bulldog is being sent down in episode five. Do we have a battle in which the Green Elves help to repel the, you know, anyway, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. So what happens? This is my question. This is the main thing I want you guys to be uh, helping us with over the course of the next few weeks. Um, 
what does Treebeard do in Beleriand? Treebeard has got to be there, right? We have Treebeard's reminiscences of Beleriand in The Lord of the Rings, right? In his songs, um, especially his the one song that Treebeard sings of from himself, right? In the uh, in the Willow Meads of Tasaranon, right? Um, and he is remembering walking all over Beleriand and breathing. Um, so apart from breathing, what does Treebeard do in Beleriand? And what's Treebeard like? Is he young and hasty, right? Uh, <laughs> Can we have somebody deliver the line, slow down, Treebeard? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what happens with Treebeard? What's he like? Um, uh, do the Entwives come with them, right? Can we have Finn Brethil? Um, if so, is there any change in their relationship? Where are we in the Ent, Ent- and Entwife storyline here? Um, and and when does that happen? Um, but what's his role? What's his reaction to the dwarves? Does he meet the dwarves? The Ents and the dwarves? What is the initial relationship between the Ents and the dwarves? Um, do the dwarves interact with the green elves at all? Like what we we ha- we've established this two way negotiation, right? This uh, Sindar dwarf relationship. When the green elves come in, what's the impact there? How does that? Um, how does that? How does that work? Um, Tony suggests that Treebeard and Celeborn should meet and become friends. I uh, I, I, I like that idea. I, I do think that... Um, is Tony, remember the things that Celeborn says about Fangorn and, and, and remember when Celeborn greets Treebeard again at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? It'd be really cool if that's the renewal of a, of a friendship from, like, thousands of years before. Um, yeah, so... We need something. The ants are going to be there, but apart from being there, what role do they play? What do they do? Um, and again, what's happening in the Angband storyline? Exactly. We're not yet in full invasion, right? Because if we're in full invasion, how do we, or if we are in full invasion, how do we postpone the big Denethor's killed fight uh, all the way th- through to episode nine? It's still a ways down the road. Um, how do we do that? So, uh, I, 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 lots of really vague, big picture questions about episode six because, again, it's it's still the one that is least clear in my mind um, about what actually what actually occurs. So I want some help with that. Um. Uh, good, good. All right. Um. So those are the things I want you guys to be thinking and talking about now. The fortunate thing I have lots of big and and uh, and uh, vague questions, but the good thing is that I um, I would I have you have lots of time to think about these things because um, we are not going to have some film again until the beginning of November until like November second third something like that whenever it is. Then let me look at my calendar. Um, I think you mean December. December. That's totally what I mean. The first. December 1st. That is absolutely what I mean. Uh, December 1st, uh, because next week I'll be away. The week after that uh, is uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So, um, uh, so yes, yes. So three weeks from today, which is December 1st, um, uh, will be the next some film episode that we will have. So you will have three weeks from today uh, to sort that stuff out. All right? That's sweet. People, we should have everything completely solved by then. That's so much time. Clearly. Clearly. I mean, what problems could not be solved in that amount of time? Um, all right. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for your 
all of your contributions uh, and your discussion here today. Uh, and uh, I look forward to continuing our development of Beleriand here as we move forward. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and Godspeed.